Good morning, everybody. We are back at it again. This is day four of the World Blind Union coverage. Uh, today, ICVI, ICEVI will be introduced into the mix. They will be having a joint session with the World Blind Union. ICEVI's International Council of Education for the Visually Impaired. I'm going to go up and go ahead and bring up the house because we're just a couple of minutes away of getting started with this morning's sessions. And we hope you've enjoyed the coverage thus far. Emails up wbu at acbradio.org. You can also send a tweet at acbradio. And we'll respond to any questions you may have. There's the house feed, so enjoy. Also to let you know, if you want to follow the agenda of today's session, you can go to acbradio.org slash WBU2016. The agenda for each day's session is posted there.
You are ready? Yes, I don't know if we've got um, Mr. Sussman. I don't know if we've got Mr. Sussman. Uh, I'm the person from Microsoft. Is here. Uh, she is here. Huh? Dear friends, we are soon going to start, so please find your seats, and we will start in a few moments. Dear friends, there is an announcement. The, the World Brand Union delegates, they are still going to sit with the tables because we are going to continue with the General Assembly after this opening session. So the delegates, they shall still sit with their tables and the rest of the people must sit in, uh, in the back of the hall and uh, please find your places as soon as possible and we can start. Dear friends, we are going to start now. Please, please, we are, going to, we are going to start our session. We have a lot of work to do today. And I will ask everyone to be seated and uh, be qu qu quiet so we can start. Please. 
I would like to welcome everyone to this um, session, which is a joint session between ICVI and World Blind Union. My name is Arndt Holte, and I'm the president of World Blind Union. And uh, we have had uh, our general assembly here for some days, but I have uh, re registered that we are a lot more people now, and there are many new people coming in. Today, we are going to break the day into two. Uh, one uh, will be here uh, with the World Blind Union. We have not finished our work, uh, um, so we are going to, to uh, do the rest of the General Assembly. So I will also kindly ask all the delegates and the participants in the World Blind Union to stay in the, in the meeting, he uh, meeting hall here after the tea break so we can continue with uh, uh, important work like uh, resolutions. So when we break for tea break, uh, please come back to this hall, uh, the World Blind Union delegates and the people in the World Blind Union General Assembly, because we are going to work uh, after tea break in this meeting hall. I wish you all welcome to this uh, joint uh, uh, opening uh, session between ICEVI and World Blind Union. For World Blind Union, ICEVI is a very important uh, partner, and uh, we are always trying to find ways to combine our uh, uh, efforts to strengthen the work for blind and partially sighted, and especially blind and partially sighted children. We are happy that so many of you can be here, and I think we have a lot of things to discuss in common, uh, and we can also achieve a new kind of ideas talking to each other. It's also uh, uh, um, many possibilities to meet, after, uh, meet outside the meeting hall and uh, have uh, opportunities to have chats. I think we have uh, got a lot of good ideas, and not every good idea is, is born in a meeting hall. Many of them are coming from the outside. So I will uh, ask the people from ICVI, from World Blind Union, to sit together and discuss and uh, learn each other better to know and find how we can also cooperate in the future. We have also been uh, successfully um, trying to, to meet on, uh, in the regions. So also the shares for the di different re regions in World Bank Union and ICVI can sit together and talk together. I think that is also an important task in this, uh, in this uh, joint General Assembly, ICVI, World Brand Union. Today we are going to have some speakers from, uh, from uh, this uh, podium. But first of all, I would like to introduce to you uh, my co-chair, uh, uh, Lord Lowe, Colin Lowe. Uh, who has been a good friend of mine for many years, and we have been working together uh, for, many, for, for many years. 
uh, we are going to share this uh, session. And uh, the first uh, who wants to uh, say something, uh, that is my coach, Colin Shea. Uh, Colin uh, Lowe, please, Colin. Thank you, Aunt. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And can I uh, echo what you have said in welcoming all the delegates and guests here this morning? I would also like to uh, endorse very much what you say about working here in the next couple of days or so in such a way as to bring our two organizations closer together uh, by sharing uh, in informal as well as formal discussions. And we've set that up so that uh, we have put the regional chairs of both our organizations together, for example, at the, uh, at the ga gala dinner, which we will be having on uh, Wednesday. And I think we've taken one or two other opportunities to try and uh, mi mix people together so that we can have that uh, cross-fertilization of our two organizations that you, you spoke about. Um, there is already uh, considerable uh, joint working, but we have a unique opportunity here this week to take it one step further. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, distinguished guests, uh, I'm particularly glad to be addressing this joint uh, WBU-ICEVI assembly uh, this morning because I should have addressed the first one four years ago back in Bangkok, but had to miss, had to miss it, probably the most important conference of my life uh, for health reasons. So uh, I'm, I'm only four years late. <laughs> this year sees one or two changes. In addition to the WBU sessions and the joint uh, sessions, which are on the program, which we've spoken about, we're having an ICEVI day today when uh, people will present papers selected on the basis of abstracts submitted along the lines of the traditional ICEVI conference. This has obviously been a, a very popular move and we've had a tremendous response. Uh, we received over 200 abstracts and after dropout as a result of sponsorship or visa problems, there will be 116 preservation, uh, presentations today in 30 concurrent sessions. Over 400 people have registered uh, to attend. So it's, it's going to be a wonderful day and uh, uh, there's going to be a, a plenty of food for thought. All the abstracts and the 66 Full papers received so far have been made available uh, to all participants. Organising and programming all this material, running in the case of the papers to 342 pages, has involved Francis Gentle, our second vice president and chair of the programme committee, and our indefatigable CEO, Dr. Mani, uh, in an enormous amount of work and they're very much to be thanked and congratulated on what they've, what they've put together. So I'd like to have a big hand, please, for Francis and Marnie. The last four...
four years uh, since our assembly in Bangkok have continued to see good progress. Our flagship IFAVI, that's Education for All Visually Impaired Children campaign, our flagship IFAVI campaign, undertaken in conjunction with the WBU, is now operating in 30 countries. It has enabled the inclusion of an additional 110,000 children in school, including some 5,000 with additional disabilities or who are uh, deaf, deaf blind, and has conducted uh, more than 650 capacity building programs in 24 countries with around 120 parents and teachers. We relaunched the program, the FAVI program, uh, to give it fresh energy at the 5th Africa Forum in Kampala last October. This was a suggestion which Arndt himself made at, at, at one of our executive meetings, and we were very glad to take that up, and I, I think it, it's, it's uh, worked very well. So we relaunched it last October, and we were given great encouragement by a message of support from no less a person than Gordon Brown, the former UK Prime Minister and now the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Global Education. Access to information is at the heart of IFAVI, and at the instance of Gordon Brown as well, we've formed a strategic partnership with the DAISY Consortium, a global alliance of organisations with expertise in delivering access to print, uh, access to print for print disabled people. Uh, and harnessing the resources of technology to get visually impaired children learning in the same schools alongside their sighted, uh, their sighted peers. The strategy has three drivers, which we call KIT, content, and confidence. KIT refers to the devices you need for accessing information using ICT. Content refers to the materials we need to access in an accessible form. Formally, this used to be textbooks in hard copy, but now it is in electronic form so that it can be accessed flexibly in Braille, large print, or synthetic speech as, as required. And confidence refers to the skills needed to use this kit and content with confidence, both on the part of users and trainers. We're currently looking at under undertaking a number of pilot projects so that we can understand better what works and what doesn't work before scaling up to a fully-fledged strategy. Gordon Brown has offered to promote the strategy with the likes of Apple, Google, Microsoft, the World Bank, the Global Partnership for Education, and so on. And we're just about to put before him a proposal for work in some half-dozen African countries. So let's hope he can get the money for us and we can crack on with the programme. For the last few years, the Essel Foundation in Austria, through its Zero project, has recognised examples of good practice and innovation in relation to people with disabilities in different fields of activity. This year, the field was education, and the IFAVI campaign was one of the projects to be recognised. Next year, the field is employment, and our higher education project has been shortlisted uh, for an award. Um, this is because the focus of the higher education project has moved somewhat from supporting visually impaired students into university to uh, enabling them to move on from university to uh, the world of work. The higher education project 
generously supported by the Nippon Foundation, began in Indonesia in 2006 to 7, and has been progressively extended to the Philippines, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, and Laos. The rationale of the project is to make universities more inclusive of visually impaired students by equipping them, that's the students, equipping them with the requisite technological skills. But for the last three three years, as I say, the focus uh, has shifted towards preparation for employment with training in relevant soft skills, hence the nomination in the latest Zero Project round. So far, 2,142 students have gone through the program. I've seen it in operation in Vietnam and also met the country coordinators for the project in one of their regular planning meetings in Bali last autumn. This was a most inspiring occasion. All those involved, coordinators and students alike, are a most impressive group of people. At least two of the coordinators are here uh, today, maybe more that I haven't met yet. I'm sure that many of the blind leaders of the future will emerge from this program. From the point of view of organisational sustainability, the World Blind Union has as much interest in this, uh, in, 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 uh, in this programme as ICEVI. So there may be further scope for collaboration between our two organisations there. Indeed, the subject of youth leadership is on the agenda uh, for Wednesday, so perhaps we can ha- have some discussion then of how uh, people can be moved from university to employment to, lead, to providing leadership in the, in, the field of, uh, in the field of blindness, providing leadership to other uh, role models and leadership to, uh, to other blind people. I'm delighted that Mr. Yohei Sasakawa, chairman of the Nippon Foundation, is with us today and very much look forward to hearing uh, what he has to say in a few minutes' time. I spoke just now of collaboration, and this assembly is just one of the symbols of the growing collaboration between ICEVI and WBU. We are working increasingly well together in the loose-knit Vision Alliance, which also embraces the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness. And I'm delighted that uh, Peter, Peter Ackland, the chief executive of that uh, Consortium is also with us in this assembly. The level of trust is such that we readily endorse each other's submissions, which helps to spread the load. Indeed, our work is characterised by an increasing emphasis on developing partnerships with many different types of organisation. Organisations in the visual impairment field, both organisations of the blind and international development, non-governmental organisations like CBM and Sightsavers. And we're also working with broader disability and education organisations, which helps to amplify our message. Working in the International Disability and Development Consortium, we've played our part in helping to see to it that disability is accorded its proper place in the new Sustainable Development Goals, and working in broader education organisations like the Global Campaign for Education helps to ensure that the inclusive education message remains firmly in the mainstream. I'm delighted that Dr Camilla Croso, President of the Global Campaign for Education, is with us today. Her presence 
symbolizes the increasingly close relationship between our two organizations, uh, and I know we will all be eager to hear what she has to say in a few minutes' time. So now I'm, that, that concludes my remarks, and all it remains for me to do is to introduce uh, Mr. Sasakawa to you. I'm just getting his file open. Mr. Sasakawa, as I just said, is chairman of the Nippon Foundation, a position he has held since 2005. The Nippon Foundation is a private non-profit foundation established in 1962 for the purpose of carrying out philanthropic activities. In 2005, Mr. Sasakawa, uh, having, having been president already for some 16 years, became the chairman. He is known as a social entrepreneur. Um, he is internationally recognized for his leadership on a, on a global scale. Leprosy is a particular passion of his, and flowing from this, he has developed a strong commitment to supporting vulnerable people, including people with disabilities. He is now also working in Myanmar, where he has been given a commission by the government to help to promote peace in that country. So we're very much looking forward to hear what Mr. Sasokawa has to say to us, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce him to you now. Thank you very much. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is a great honor to be invited to this joint assembly of the World Blind Union and International Council for Education of People with Visual Impairment, or ICVI. I would like to express my sincere gratitude to Lord Lowe Mr. Horte, and the organizers for giving me this opportunity to address you. I understand that over the next few days, the World Blind Union and ICVI will be sharing individual experiences and discussing a number of important issues. On my part, I appreciate this opportunity to be able to introduce to you our activities at the Nippon Foundation. The Nippon Foundation, of which I am chairman, is a private nonprofit organization in Japan. We have been active for over 50 years now, not only in Japan, but also internationally. Our vision is to achieve an inclusive society where everyone embraces diversity and able to play an active role. In order to realize this vision, 
we carry out a number of different projects. In developing countries, many children and youth are not able to receive an appropriate education for different reasons. Disability is one of, the, one of these reasons. Our goal has been to provide such young people with access to education. The Nippon Foundation's educational support for blind and partially sighted people began in the 1980s when we established a fund at the Overbrook School for the Blind in the United States. It was through this fund that we started working with Dr. Larry Campbell, who is a strong advocate for the importance of higher education and training for blind and partial sighted people. At that time, education support for them tended to emphasize primary and secondary education rather than higher education, especially in the developing countries of Southeast Asia. Working with Dr. Campbell over the years in our discussions, we agreed that the time had come to support higher education. This was the beginning of our higher education project with ICVI in the late 1990s. This joint project has been providing access to higher education for blind and partially sighted people in six countries in the Asian region. It has enabled more than 1,000 500 students to study at institutions of higher education. Let me describe how these projects take place. We help universities better grasp the needs of blind and partially sighted students. We also advise them on how to make changes that will accommodate their needs. Specifically, we recommend certain considerations that help blind students in taking entrance examinations, as well as support them so that they can concentrate in their studies. In this, it is important to gain the understanding of the faculty. As for the students, they must be equipped with the necessary skills to fully participate in their classes. With this in mind, a project set up support centers that offer the necessary workshops and training for both faculty and students. Students and the faculty are welcome to stop by for advice. In recent years, we have also been focusing on career development support to help students shape their lives after graduation. 
ICVI has increased its effort in this area. We are pleased to hear that many of our graduates have found employment. In some countries, we work with the Ministry of Education to encourage enrollment of blind students in higher education. These activities have been successful, and both enrollment and employment rates have improved significantly. This is thanks to the support of their teachers and their family, and also because of the strong motivation of the students who believed in their own potential. We started these projects with the hope of making a difference in the lives and future of blind and partially sighted people, and we are happy to see that this is happening. In the afternoon workshop today, those who took part in these projects from five countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, Laos, and Japan, will share their stories. We could say they are role models who instill confidence in young people and inspire them to fulfill their potential and achieve their goals. I have talked about the higher education project undertaken by ICVI and the Nippon Foundation. But allow me to talk about the work of the Nippon Foundation concerning the lives of disabled people. You may still remember the Great East Japan earthquake and the tsunami that struck Japan five years ago. The disaster claimed many precious lives, but sadly, according to a study conducted after the earthquake, the mortality rate of people with disabilities was nearly double than that of the general population. One of the reasons is that they had not been included in the planning and implementation process of disaster risk reduction in their communities. In 2015, the United Nations Third World Conference on disaster risk reduction was held in Sendai, Japan, a major city devastated by the earthquake. I strongly felt the need for disabled people to participate in this conference. This is because it is extremely important that disaster risk reduction and management incorporate the perspective of dis disabled people. In the past, they could not participate in UN conferences 
on the issue of disaster risk reduction as important stakeholders. In the wake of this disaster, I proposed to the United Nations that disabled people be given a voice in discussions on disaster risk reduction. On the occasion of the Sendai Conference, UI, the Nippon Foundation, provided support to facilitate their participation by ensuring accessibility for blind and deaf individuals and for wheelchair users. The result was epoch-making. We saw many disabled people actively take a part and assume important roles in the conference. I believe it is important for them to make their voices heard in policy making and to communicate their individual and specific needs. This will be one step toward realizing a more inclusive society. Today, I look forward to lively discussions at the sessions and the workshops of this joint assembly and to learning more about your activities. Once again, let me express my gratitude to Lord Lowe and Mr. Horte for this wonderful opportunity to be with you today. I would also like to thank you, Dr. Campbell, for our long-standing friendship and all who have participated in our project. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mr. Sasakawa, for that uh, wonderful address. I'm sure all of us will have found the work of the Nippon Foundation, which you've described to us, uh, quite inspirational. Thank you again. Our next speaker is Dr. Camilla Croso, who is the president of the Global Campaign for Education, with which uh, ICEVI has just begun to get into partnership. Uh, Camilla is coordinator of the Latin American Campaign for the Right to Education. This is a network representing 15 national education forums, eight regional networks from Latin America, and five international NGOs. It seeks to influence policymaking at a national, regional, and international level. And as president of the Global Campaign for Education, uh, Camilla is in an even more powerful position to uh, exert a, a strong and beneficial influence on uh, the, the world of education and how it, how it develops. Uh, 
So um, thank you for coming to speak to us, uh, Camilla. Uh, may I in introduce you and invite you to make your keynote address? Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is an honor to speak at the World Blind Union and International Council for Education of People with Visual Impairments Joint Assembly during the ICVI Day. The mission to promote equal access to appropriate education for all visually impaired children and youth so that they may achieve their full potential is inspiring to all of us who strive to ensure the realization of the human right to education for all, as is the case of the Global Campaign for Education. This conference comes at a timely moment, just one year after the adoption at the UN of the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda, as well as the Education 2030 Framework for Action adopted in Paris last year as well which details the content and implementation of the SDG, focusing on SDG 4, inclusive quality and equitable education for all. Both the, the Framework for Action and SDG 4 make specific references to ensuring inclusion of persons with disability. This is a very important landmark, as, as is recently embraced and englobed by the entire world. Although the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda is the most recent landmark in regards to recognizing inclusion as a cornerstone of quality education, this perspective has been strengthening over the past 20 years and is enshrined in the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the first legally binding instrument to contain an explicit reference to the concept of quality-inclusive education. More recently, another landmark has been um, shared and made public in January of this year and is the draft general comment number four of Article 24 of the above-mentioned convention, which details the different dimensions of the right to inclusive education, the barriers that exist, and the ways forward to overcome them. I am sure that this general comment will be a landmark in promoting um, inclusive quality education for all. These landmark documents have been very important to promote an attitudinal shift in regards to persons with disabilities, recognizing them under international law as subjects of rights and promoting a human rights paradigm of disability which outlines physical, attitudinal, social, cultural and communication barriers within the community rather their impairments within the individual as causes for exclusion of persons with disability. We have already said that inclusive education is a cornerstone for quality education. While recognizing this, it becomes clear that this is true not only for persons with disability, but indeed for every child, adolescent, youth and adult. Supporting persons with disabilities in inclusive environments leads to improved quality education for all, becoming person-centered and adaptable education. When teachers are educated to include children with disabilities, the level and standards of learning for children with both 
disabilities and, not, and without disability increases. Although progress has been made, many millions of people, persons with disability, continue to be denied a right to education. And for many more, such education only exists in settings where they are isolated from their peers and receive an inferior quality of education. This is a clear violation of their right to education. While data are limited, the most recent global estimates of the World Health Organization points out that there are between 93 and 150 million children living with disability. Unfortunately, children with disabilities who attend schools are more likely to be excluded in the classroom and to drop out. In Latin America and the Caribbean, for example, estimates point that only between 20 to 30 percent of children with disability attend school. Furthermore, it is crucial to remember that persons with disabilities can experience intersectional discrimination, which means multiple forms of discrimination based not only on disability, but also gender, religion, legal status, ethnic or racial, racial origin, age or sexual orientation. But I would like to point out something very important and discuss and debate with you. What does it mean? What do we understand by inclusive education? If we take, the, if we take what the Committee of the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disability says, Inclusive education is a process that transforms culture, policy, and practice in all educational environments to accommodate the differing needs of individual students together with a commitment to remove the barriers that impede that possibility. It is far, far beyond access to education. An inclusive approach focuses on the attendance, participation, and achievement of all students and seeks to enable communities, systems, and structures to combat, to combat discrimination, celebrate diversity, promote participation, and overcome barriers to learning for all. It requires in-depth transformation of education systems, not only in legislation and policy, but also in mechanisms for funding, administration, design, delivery, and monitoring of education. Inclusive education is a fundamental human right, a means to achieve not only the realization of the right to education, but all human rights, as well as a principle that values the well-being of students, respects their inherent dignity, and acknowledges their needs and their ability to make a contribution to society. It is very, very important to acknowledge the difference between what we understand by segregation, integration, and inclusion. While segregation occurs when students with disabilities are educated in separate schools from students without disabilities, inclusion involves processes that modify relationship patterns and that adapt structures, content, curricula, teaching and learning methods, textbooks, and learning materials to the students. On the other hand, integration places persons with disability in existing mainstream education institutions, requiring them to adapt and accommodate to a predetermined environment. Inclusive education requires education systems to respond to students rather than obliging students to fit the system. I would like to underline some core dimensions to ensure inclusive education. These dimensions are known by the four A's, 
availability, accessibility, acceptability, and adaptability. And these dimensions are true to the right to education in, for all. In regards to the, the right to education of persons with, disab with disability, I would like to remind rem us all that availability involves the fact that schools, of, uh, inclusive schools, must be available across all geographical locations, urban and rural settings, centric and peripheral areas. Availability of textbooks, learning materials in accessible formats is of, is of paramount importance, including the use of innovative technologies, which will we be hearing soon. Accessibility requires that education for economically accessible, uh, be economically accessible for all students. The Education 2030 Framework for Action and Goal 4 of the SDGs call for at least 12 years of free education, including primary and secondary education. Acceptability involves the fact that all education-related facilities, processes, and materials must take full account of and be respectful of the needs, expectations, cultures, views, and languages of persons with disabilities. And adaptability involves the fact that inclusive education must create adaptable learning environments and develop instructions to meet the needs of all the diverse learners. In regards to adaptability, Article 2 of the Convention underlines the need for states to provide reasonable accommodation as the necessary and appropriate modifications and adjustment. This is absolutely important because there is no one-fits-all formula to reasonable accommodation. For example, some students with low vision may use screen magnification technology, while others with the same disability may prefer materials in large print. Accommodations may include changing the location of a class, providing different forms of in-class communication, enlarging print, or providing all handouts in Braille, providing students with, a, providing students with, with opportunities to learn Braille, alternative script, augmentative and alternative modes, means, and formats of communication. These are issues that all policymakers should be discussing. These are issues that has, have to be discussed in Congresses all around the world. And now that we are entering the implementation phase of the SDGs, when we have the high-level political forum accompanying the implementation of the entire SDG uh, debate, these are issues that have to be discussed in these broad scenarios. I would like to also recall the fact that teachers are, are absolutely crucial, are at the heart of ensuring the realization of the right to education and of inclusive education. Some, some barriers have to be um, put forward and discussed and debated by all of us. One of the barriers that we understand is the fact that the human rights paradigm of disability outlined in Article 1 of the Convention is still, is still far from fully understood by society as a whole and by policymakers. Therefore, there is not sufficient public debate regarding the barriers of legal, physical, attitudinal, social, and cultural barriers that affect our, our, um, within the community in itself. Ongoing discrimination of all kinds is another key barrier. Stigmatization, stereotyping, and lack of understanding of the nature of, the, of disabilities as well. 
along with the lack of disaggregated data, insufficient funding, and lack of awareness of human rights, including the right to education, and of the justiciability mechanism that exists to overcome violations. There are some immediate state obligations that must be put in place. Non-discrimination is one of them. The provision of reasonable accommodation is another one. And the establishment of compulsory free primary and secondary education for all is yet another one. I would like to conclude putting forward some policy recommendations. Within the, the field of legislation, we must ensure that legislation prohibiting discrimination on, on grounds of disability are put forward. Not only do we have to have legislation that prohibit discrimination, but we need to have legislations that actually promote inclusive education in the lines, along the lines that I mentioned during this address. But legislation is insufficient. We need to have education sector plans and cross-sector plans that actually develop and detail down the implementation of inclusive education. And we must ensure the transferring of resources from segregated to inclusive schools and environments. Some very important keys, uh, uh, key means of implementation are the putting forward of disaggregating data, sufficient financial resources, motivated and valued teachers, and active consultation and participation of persons with disability in policy and decision making, including children with disabilities through their representative organizations. Monitoring and evaluation is another very important field of policy recommendation. The committee has pointed out that standardized testing is insufficient and, and may actually be very counterproductive for children with disabilities. Indicators that look at structural process and outcome um, must be put in place. Much more comprehensive, much more holistic, and much more sensitive to the difference and diversity of everyone. And finally, we have to make sure that justiciability mechanisms are known and understood by all that everybody who feels and knows that their right to education has been violated can access mechanisms to overcome these violations. So once again, I would like to thank you all very much for, your, for listening to me, for the invitation that I have received. I look forward very much um, in um, strengthening the relationship among our organizations and making sure that this debate is actually mainstream, that this debate, that these debates are actually taken at the level of UNESCO and the steering committee that will follow up the SDG4 and also at the UN and at every country of this world so that actually inclusive education can become a reality for all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Camilla. When I opened the General Assembly some days ago, I talked about uh, technology and the meaning of technology and how important technology is to get access to education, employment, and society. Therefore, we have also invited Jenny Fleury 
from Microsoft to talk about uh, technology. She is the chief accessible, uh, accessibility officer in Microsoft. And I think we also, uh, it's, it's good to integrate technology in everything we are doing. So Jenny, please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, and good morning. I, uh, I'm deeply honored to be here, and I'm very humbled by the invitation and slightly scared. But I, uh, I, um, I want to first start by introduce myself a little bit. I, uh, Jenny Lay Flurry, I am not from these parts. Um, I'm from a small country across a pond uh, called England. And uh, I actually was born in a place called Birmingham, note the lack of ham, um, there uh, in the middle of the country with two parents, both teachers, uh, later principals or head teachers. Um, I had a great humbling beginning, uh, and me and my sister, I've just enjoyed life. My parents used to talk a lot about inclusion, and we thought that was because they taught in inner city schools. We thought it was about race and language and all those beautiful things. They were, they were talking about it in that regard, but they were also talking about it because my sister and I are both deaf. My sister born cognitively, mine developed over years, and I'm deceptively and beautifully deaf is how I coin it, um, because I have retained my British accent, uh, which I'm very proud of, by the way, um, and we, by the way, we are second in the medals table for the Olympics, and that's another point of game on. Although I do have to point out that I've been living in the U.S. now for 10 years, so I also have to congratulate Team USA and every other country. Uh, but I born in UK with my beautiful British accent, which was actually very different from where I'm from, Birmingham. Has anyone heard of Ozzy Osbourne? Anyone heard of him? <laughs> I, uh, he has a lovely accent, I hear, uh, or I don't, but I, I'm glad that my deafness actually enabled me to not develop the same accent as Ozzy. And, and again, I believe disability is a strength, and that is one proof point uh, that I have. I, what I went on to do, though, was to go on and just pursue my dreams. My parents set one goal for me, which is you can do anything you set your mind to. I went through normal classic school education, as did my sister, and I went on to pursue a music degree, uh, which raised some questions. Deaf girl music, game on, um, and had a great time. I came out as a classically trained clarinetist, a relatively bad one, but I came out and uh, ended up as a starving musician. Uh, and in fact, we found my, my degree dissertation last week when I was in the UK. My sister gave it to me, and it was actually on uh, sensory impairment, blindness and deafness, and uh, the link with music, which I did in partnership with the RNIB 20 years ago, um, which was just great to find. It's terrible reading, and I would never share it, but it, it was great to find. I found, though, that I was starving, as most musicians are and ended up getting a job on an IT help desk, mostly to pay the bills, having never really used a computer. And I worked at a, at a newspaper, which those British among you will know as the Daily Mirror. It's a very reputable, quality newspaper. 
um, I jest. And, uh, but I learned a lot. 20 years later, I've been in the technology industry and continue to learn. What I learned about computing then is still what I learn every day now, which is that it can empower you. It gives you access and speed, and it helps you to do amazing things. I went through a variety of companies, ended up at Microsoft. I ended up at Microsoft in London, and very quickly learned that it was going to be a hard company to work at. Not any critique of Microsoft, it was a, just a global company. And people talk fast, and they have different accents and languages, and they all like to talk. Terribly rude. And horrible for a deaf girl. I got myself embedded in the employee community, and that started my journey with accessibility. I learned that everyone was having similar struggles. How to identify, self-advocacy, how do I tell my manager what I need? What do I need? I've just developed and acquired a disability. I need to do something to help me. I'm slowing down. What can I do to make myself quicker, more productive, and live into my own personal dreams. Every individual had those queries. I was curious, or some would say nosy, and joined every other disability group I could at Microsoft, of which there were a whole handful. The blindness group at Microsoft is one of our oldest groups of employees. It's nearly 20 years old. I joined all of those, and we put a big wrapper around them, and we started talking a lot more about accessibility. Microsoft's had a 20-year history with accessibility with some ebbs and flows, as many of you here will know. We've had greatness and not so greatness. But really, what we all wanted to do was to help make technology better and live into the new mission of the company, which is to empower every person and every organization to achieve more. About six years ago, I then stepped out of my career, as it was, and moved into a new one, to really look at accessibility in a different way, see what we could do to really enable people to know what was available and improve what was available. The first little project we had was to change the support services that we put out there for customers with disabilities using Microsoft products. That formed the Disability Answer Desk, or as we like to call it, DAD. I don't have a mum, but a team, and I do have a DAD team. And it is now in 11 countries. It's in uh, French, Spanish, English. It takes about 12,000 contacts every month from customers with disabilities, of which the majority share are people with blindness looking for assistance and how to access office, screen readers, how do I switch on high contrast, how do I fix this issue that I've got with magnification. We also opened up a uh, sign language channel on video for our deaf customers and we're looking every day to expand that service because what we learned is that people need to talk to a human that gets it on the other line. When you say the word jaws, you want somebody on the, on the other end of the line that knows what that word means and not think about a shark. You need people that are educated, that have empathy. And that led us down a different path as I became Chief Accessibility Officer in January, which is a very fancy title, but what it basically means is that I now have the charter to drive things, along with a massive investment that we've taken across Microsoft to improve more than just a few things.
The next really big area of focus is to really think, and we have been thinking a lot about inclusive hiring and how we need, and I want to really point on that, that word, we need people with disabilities at Microsoft to help us do better, to help us to have products that are accessible for all. We need them. We put out a website earlier this year, microsoft.com slash inclusive hiring, which has all of our jobs, our best practices, our accommodations, everything you need to know as a, a prospective employee about careers at Microsoft. And we've been partnering with other organizations, whether it's Lime Connect, Teach Access, to learn more about how we could change the pipeline because we learned that we need to grow the pipeline. It's crazy to me. We have an unemployment rate that is double that of people without disabilities. And yet I can't get enough people in the pipeline. That's terrifying. And that leads me to the other key part which is what can we do as a company and what can we do as a, as a massive group of influential people to really drive more people through education, to take the beautiful wisdom that we've heard from the speakers this morning and make it a reality. Technology is a big part of that. Education is a big part of that. Making accessibility part of university curriculum. It has to be in there. And then making sure that we have products that make it easy for people to use technology and not worry, as I used to, about whether I was going to be successful in a meeting, but whether or not I was going to just deliver my best in that meeting. Right today, I have everything set with my accommodations. I have a beautiful entourage. Her name is Belle. She signs at me all day long. She's blonde and way more attractive than I am. But her job means that I don't worry about whether I'm going to be successful in that room. I don't have to think about my accommodation walking in in the morning. It's set for me. Technology can be that tool if we get it right. We're on a journey with technology. We've been doing a lot when it comes to Windows, uh, which just launched, because we keep launching. I'm sorry, it keeps moving on. Uh, but we just launched Windows 10 Anniversary Update. And in that, we're working hard on our inbuilt screen reader. We got a ways to go, people. I'm not going to lie to you. But we do have six more levels of verbosity and around 800 words per minute. We're getting there as well as our partnership with third-party accessible technology providers, and also making sure that that upgrade to people using accessible technologies is free. Free. That's a good word, right? <laughs> I also, it's not just about Windows, it's about Office. Office is the product that really can empower students in the classroom. Now, the great thing about this scary thing called the cloud is that we can release pretty much every month. Don't be terrified. It just automatically happens, and it, it's, it's all good. But what it means is that we can incrementally release products. And with the feedback of so many people in this room that have been helping us with their expertise and their Jenny, you're not going to do that, are you? You're going to do this, which I get every day. We have been able to incrementally add features like Tell Me in Office 365. We've also got high contrast. It's just easier and better. 
And if you go into the mail and calendar app using Narrator, you're going to have a smile on your face. That is a good thing. And if you don't have a smile on your face, and in fact, one of the most important things I think about this community is your feedback, growing our channels where you can tell me, you can tell the whole of us where we're getting it right and where we're getting it wrong. There's something called user voice, Microsoft Accessibility User Voice, which if you open a very reputable search engine like Bing you'll, and you just type that in, you'll be able to go to our user voice and it's a forum. You can put, say, hey, Jenny, you didn't get this right. It's buggy and it's not working. And we look at that. My team looks at that every day. In fact, the same team that manages the dad manages that user forum. You can also go chuck it on Twitter. I don't laugh at my Twitter handle. It's Jenny Lay Fluffy. No one could pronounce my name as a kid, least of all me. And so uh, you can add it on there, or Microsoft Enable is the big accessibility handle. We want to hear what is working for you and what is not. We do not today get enough feedback from the community to help us. Now, don't get me wrong. We got a lot to do, but we really want to increase those channels and that expertise that you all have with your daily use of your technology. Bottom line, we're on a mission. I am on a mission. My team now 25 folks and the army of people and my peers across the company are determined to make technology and opportunity and innovation and everything else we can do part of enabling and changing some of the paradigms that have resulted in that unemployment rate. We're determined and we need your help and we need your partnership. We really truly believe that we can make a difference together. And if I go back to my dad, who ended his career as a special needs advisor in the UK, the one thing he used to say to me is, you know what, Jen, you can go and do anything if you set your mind to it. I believe that technology can unleash that potential. And I hope that you join me on it. Thank you so much for enabling me to be here today. And I look forward to listening and learning the rest of today. Thank you. Fantastic. Very good. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you so much. It was so inspiring. And um, I think you pointed also out that the best technology is the technology you are using and you don't know that you're using technology. That is the easiest way. If it's so uh, integrated into your life that you can't, you are, you are not saying that you're using technology, you are just living. That is the best technology. So, wonderful, and uh, I can guarantee that uh, both ICVI and uh, World Run Union will be active parts because we believe that uh, technology, technology is um, uh, the gateway to the future. So we will be with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have uh, heard uh, our speakers. I don't think we are going to have uh, questions and comments in this session. But um, Fra uh, Francis, 
will uh, say something about the program for ICVI. And uh, Francis Gentle, please, the microphone is yours. Good morning, everyone. My name is Frances Gentle, and I've had the honour to be the chairperson for the ICVI Program Committee. So on behalf of the Program Committee, I join our presidents, Colin Lowe and Aunt Holt, in welcoming you to the joint WBU-ICVI General Assembly. And for our ICVI delegates, I welcome you to this inaugural ICVI Papers Day. The response, as, as Colin mentioned, the response to the call for papers has been remarkable. And we have a rich program of presentations and workshops that explore the day's overall theme of education for all children with visual impairment beyond 2015. In terms of the ICVI day's setup, there will be there are three 90-minute sessions, and each session has 10 concurrent sessions, and they are in room, salon rooms 5 to 14 on level 2. So after the tea break, we would greatly appreciate if you move, this is the ICBI Day delegates, up to level 2. The first session will commence at 11 a.m., which is after the morning tea break, and will conclude um, at 12.30 for lunch. The second session is between 2.30 and 4 p.m., so that's between lunch and afternoon tea break. And the third session is between 4.30 and 6 p.m. So as a matter of courtesy to the presenters, please allow enough time to reach your chosen session before, they, before it commences. The program committee thanks you, our delegates, presenters and session chairs for your contributions. We have made every effort to balance, to create a balanced and interesting program with presentation topics aligned with themes as much as possible. There are print copies of the day's schedule on the registration desk and there are brow copies for those who requested them, and I hope everyone received electronic um, copies on USB sticks as well, and the topics are also on the website. For those presenters who have not yet um, provided your presentations, you're invited to preload them in the room before your session commences. And the session names are, uh, appear on the outside of the salon doors. So all that is left now is to enjoy the day. We invite you to share and extend your knowledge and to create and renew friendships and collegial networks. So thank you. Thank you, Francis. Uh, we are also going to have an uh, announcement about uh, culture, I think it is. Uh, Mark Riccobono. Good morning. Uh, this is Mark Riccobono, President of the National Federation of the Blind, your proud host for this joint assembly. 
so I want to begin by welcoming our colleagues from the ICEVI to the United States. It's uh, our pleasure to have you here. Uh, I hope you're uh, finding uh, everything that you need, and please let us know if we can be helpful to you. Of course, I've made the mistake this morning of using technology with my iPhone, and someone's trying to call me while I'm up here, so I can't get to my notes. So, you should use Microsoft. <laughs> I should be using Microsoft, uh, Arn says. <laughs> Just to pick on my friend Jenny, I could say, well, is that because no one ever calls a Microsoft phone? Is that... <laughs> She'll get me for that later. So, uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, first, for our, we're going to work backwards. For our colleagues that are here um, from ICEVI, on Wednesday, we have a gala dinner in the evening. You've received in your packet, if you are registered, a green invitation to the dinner. It's a small green invitation. And you need to exchange your invitation to the gala dinner for a ticket. The ticket is actually what gets you into the gala dinner. You can exchange, make that exchange at our welcome desk just across the hall from this ballroom in the foyer. Please exchange your invitation for a ticket to the gala dinner. And please do that before the lunch hour today. I'd encourage you to do it right at the tea break that's coming up, we have to give the hotel a guarantee. We've already gotten most of the exchanges from the WBU delegates. Uh, we need to get the ICEVI folks into the count as soon as possible. So please make that exchange as soon as you can and certainly before noon today. Now, this evening we're having a culture night to celebrate that we're in the United States of America and to have a little fun together. The culture night is not going to be in this hotel, but very close across the street in the convention center. Your agenda shows that the culture night will begin at 8 o'clock. Actually, we'll be ready a little earlier than that, so we'd encourage you to even come by at starting at 7.45 this evening. The fastest way to get to the convention center from the hotel is to access it from the second floor of the hotel. So if you get off on the second floor at the elevators for the sleeping rooms and make your way past the salons, we'll have marshals there. If you're here on the first floor, you can take the escalators, the stairs, or the elevator right near this ballroom here. That'll take you up to the second floor. From the escalators right here, you would take a right and go across the walkway to the convention center. Again, we'll have marshals to direct you to room W304 in the convention center. It's a five-minute walk. It's not that bad. But you do have to go across the street to the convention center. Please come over starting at 745 to have a little fun, a little food, a little fellowship. We're, we are having a baseball theme, I guess, to go with the Olympics and the United States. So you can have some baseball food, including hot dogs and popcorn and peanuts. And there will be a cash bar, so you can get various drinks. And that's the food portion. You'll be able to get food. 
starting at 7.45. And then we have various activities that will be going on uh, right when you get there at 7.45. The first activity is you can see how fast you can throw a baseball. Now, the Major League Baseball players in the United States can throw sometimes up to 100 miles an hour. I don't know what benchmark we're going to set for the delegates here, but you can come see how fast you can throw a baseball, and there'll be some other activities, including for a very brief time, you'll be able to do a meet and greet and a photo with a United States astronaut. And you'll be able to touch uh, some of the... Uh, paraphernalia that gets used in space, uh, a space glove and that sort of thing. And you'll be able to get a photo with the astronaut that our plan is, if you get a photo, we will be able to email it to you if you have an email address. But there's only going to be a limited amount of time and a limited amount of space. So I would encourage you to get there early to meet the astronaut, uh, to get some food, some drink, to try throwing a baseball and some other fun activities. Then we will move into the program portion of the evening where we will hear from uh, this astronaut who uh, he only has 11 million miles of travel in space. Only. Only 11 million. But So he probably has something to tell us about what it's like to be in space. We're going to hear from him and have a chance uh, hopefully to ask a few questions. And then we're going to have a musical portion of the evening, a musical history of the United States and the United States in music. And we're going to have this from J.P. Williams, who is a blind musician and songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee. He has written a number of songs that have uh, been published. He's a great entertainer. You will enjoy hearing from him, and you'll even have the opportunity to hear a little music also that has been used in the civil rights movement for the blind in the United States. So I'd encourage you to come participate in our cultured night tonight starting at 7.45. Finally, two other things. Some people have signed up to take a ride in our blind driver challenge vehicle driven by a blind driver, specifically myself. (laughs) If you have signed up to do that, please show up at your appointed time at the back parking lot, which is just when you go out of this ballroom, take a left and go all the way to the back of the hotel. Please show up shortly before your appointed time. If you're not there, we're going to fill your spot with someone else who's waiting, who is signed up. Uh, I'm sorry we could only take so many spots. All of them are full. Um, You are welcome to come watch, uh, but please uh, don't jump out in front of the car. (laughs) And lastly, just a reminder that the exhibit hall is open at 10, starting at 10.30 today. I would encourage you to visit our exhibit hall and to patronize the uh, technology vendors who have come to share their time with us during the conference. I think those are all of the announcements I have. Mr. Chair, thank you very much. Thank you, thank, thank you Mark. And um, I guess the best thing with a blind driver is that you have no license to lose. Okay. Um,
We, we are going to, uh, to end this uh, session now. There will be a coffee break, and we will be uh, starting here with the World Bank Union General Assembly. It's going to be very exciting. It's about uh, resolutions. So please come back to this uh, meeting hall, the World Bank uh, uh, delegates and people, uh, in, and, uh, and the rest of you can go to very, very exciting and uh, interesting uh, uh, sessions around. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, we are on break, and the resolution should be interesting. We find out what they've got uh, coming up. Great speech by Jenny Lee Fleury. I really like that one. Of course, she's uh, quite an excellent speaker. Yes, absolutely. In, in all respects, you know, there are people they call naturals. And she would qualify definitely as a natural. Until she arrives here to pick up our friend Eric Bridges, I might as well bring him on board in this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, so, Eric, uh, Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind, you've been busy this morning and throughout this week visiting with uh, different delegations, with companies who are exhibiting here at the World Line Union quadrennial conference. Is it your first conference, Eric? Yes, it is. You weren't with us in, back in Thailand days when Larry and I went clothes shopping. You would have enjoyed it. I, I, I'm sure that I would have. I, I certainly love sure Thai food. I was going to say, I don't think your credit card would, but uh, yeah, you would. <laughs> yeah, we had, a, we had an excellent time there. So, you've uh, been listening to lots of presentations. You're here as an observer because uh, the elected officials of ACB function as its direct delegate. But you have had an opportunity to meet with many, many people, uh, including last night for dinner with uh, Charles Mossop, the director, or president rather, of the North American Caribbean region. What did you think of those meetings yesterday afternoon? They were uh, really informative. I previously, uh, in, in my other role at ACB, I did a lot of work around what is now known as the Marrakesh Treaty at the UN, at the World Intellectual Property Organization, and it is uh, somewhat striking the similarity and how these meetings are laid out with tea breaks and lengthy lunches and uh, uh, just how, how the process goes and how it's really designed to, to provide networking opportunities and, and uh, ways to, to solve the issues at hand outside of the ballroom. Um, exactly. Very much about what happens in the halls. Yes. Not just what happens in the halls. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, as a result of that, many friendships and partnerships are kindled with these things. The parliamentary procedure, or how do I put it? Parliamentary is not quite the right word, is it? Because... They don't work under Robert's rules of order here. It's a different way of going about the whole process of idea becomes something in the written word, uh, candidate runs for office, whatever. Next speaker, sir. So a combination of different things have been happening here that don't feel very much like back home. No, it's very different. It's very different, but it's also uh, very collegial. So I, I think it's the collegial nature of it that makes it at all doable. Yes. It's interesting that uh, at one point in yesterday's discussions, there were three what we would consider amendments on the floor simultaneously. And uh, 
none of them were really voted on. Rather, that the individuals felt that their ideas and concerns were understood and then basically said, if it's in the minutes, it's fine with me. <laughs> and yes. That's a very different way of going about the business. Yeah. Totally different there. And yet it's still, like you said, because it's so collegial, it still seems to work for this particular group. Now, I have not been involved in any uh, directly UN activities, but I imagine being a more formal organization by its nature, it probably has many more hoops to jump through. It, well, it does, and it's consensus-driven. So things can be drawn out, sometimes intentionally, by certain parties. Uh, and other times, it's just uh, the paralysis of analysis. And uh, one night, we met until midnight, and the uh, interpreters had to leave. Uh, because of their mandated, I think they're part of a union or they have some sort of an agreement, and uh, they'd worked something like 15 hours at that point, and they had to leave, and there we all were, still there, uh, trying to hammer things out. And so uh, UN, UN-based work is very, very difficult, very lengthy in nature. Um, not completely unlike the congressional process, however, it's... Uh, far more consensus rather than party driven so and we've experienced a bit more party politics than we're particularly happy with exactly uh, in this country in recent uh, at least months probably years yep what how many how many congressional cycles do you think we've been in this polarization process uh, I would say probably probably since 2000 and Eight, two, uh, 2007, after the 2006 uh, elections where the Democrats took over the House and I believe they also took over the Senate, um, things have been pretty polarized. Totally polarized from there forward. Yeah. Well, let's see. What else can I ask you about that you've experienced here that uh, you don't experience back home up in Washington, D.C. area or, for that matter, among our, our affiliates in ACB? You did, have done quite a bit of traveling to our affiliates, seeing how business is done in different ways in different affiliates, both special interest and state affiliate based. I am pretty amazed also that this organization achieves a balance between agencies or organizations for the blind and organizations of the blind and keeping that in firm balance. Yeah. Not dissimilar to what we attempt to do with uh, both special interest and state affiliates and representation on committees and those kinds of things. No, it's, uh, this whole thing is, it's been fascinating um, watching how all of these organizations work together in this, in this current body as we're all here. Um, it, it, on the outside, it seems like such a, a mishmash of uh, of interests, and uh, but once you get all in a room, um, there's a there's a ton of commonality, and uh, the, I think not to sound cheesy, but the commonality is that we're all dealing with blindness and visual impairment, and I think there there's a a, a sense of uh, I don't know. We've we've got one another. Um, That's right. Yeah, and we're, we're speaking and, the same language. Yeah, we're we don't have to fundamentally to somebody else. Yeah, 
what it is we're about. Right. People in this room, whether they're from Tanzania or from London, yes. makes no difference. No. They, they all understand this one aspect of who we are. Well, I'm waiting for a person. I want to make sure they're not being overly polite and standing behind Somebody us. Somebody was here. One moment. Let me double check that. Hiroko is here. If you're, there we go. Okay, is he, if you're ready. When we're Mr. ready. Okay. We're just filling Mr. Sasakawa over. And, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, thank you, Eric, for your time. We'll see you a little later. So hi, this is Hiroko from the Nippon Palace. May I introduce our chairman, Mr. Sasakawa? No, 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 no. Nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please have a seat, and we'll conduct an interview if we may. And I will be the interpreter for him. Very good. So I think it'd be best if the interpreter were between us, the way this microphone picks up. It is a broadband microphone. Even though our microphone will be pointed, I think, toward our interpreter, mm. the fact right. of the matter is it, it picks up equally well. And I'm sitting the other in two between directions. you two now. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. Okay. So, first, let me thank you for joining us and tell you how much I enjoyed your opening remarks. Mm. The World Blind Union and ICEVI are very, very grateful for what your foundation has done. And I personally, as a person who's blind and visually impaired, also want to extend to you my personal gratitude for what you and your family and your contributors have done to help people who are blind or visually impaired achieve all that they're capable of achieving given opportunity to do so. あの、WBU might I ask you a few questions uh, to draw out additional information, though our listeners heard your opening remarks? They, I'd like to ask questions on their behalf, if I may. あの、会会の挨拶を聞かれた方から、ま、もう少し深く知りたいというところがあるかと思いますので、私がま、そういった視聴者を代表いたしましていくつか質問させていただければと思います。Okay。You've heard this morning from a couple of speakers about the importance of education for blind and visually impaired individuals and our general belief that inclusion into the regular education system is going to be the most effective way for us to provide that. You've also been involved in supporting schools for the blind to some degree through your relationship with Larry Campbell and the Overbrook School. How do you feel education will be the most effective in getting to blind children? 
あの今朝スピーカー何人かの方々もこの盲人に対しての教育というのが非常に重要であるという話がいくつかございましたそしてその中でもやはり盲人教育というのは一般の教育の中に彼らを入れることによってインクルーシブな形での教育をしていくということが重要であるというふうに私自身も感じておりますまたさらに財団はその盲人学校などに対しても長きにわたって協力をしてくださいましたそういった中でその盲人の方々に対しての教育という観点でどのような教育がやはり一番効果につながるというふうにお考えであるかということを伺えればと思います。あの私たち日本財団はね、えー、4つの大きなあ仕事をしております一つは障害者の問題そして災害の問題それから子どもの問題老人の問題の4つですそういう中で障害者の問題を最大の大きなテーマとして私自身活動をしておりますすべての人々はね平等に教育を受ける権利があるわけでございましてそういう意味から特に途上国においてはまだまだ子どもの障害者の教育ということまで手が回っておらないわけでそういうところを私どもは各国を回って、えー障害を持った子どもたちが教育に参加できる機会を作るまた我々自身もそれに協力をしていくというのが我々の大きな役目だと思っております。Now, Nippon Foundation, which I am representing, actually is focusing on four major areas in terms of our aid. One is the people of, with disability, and second is Uh, for the people affected by natural disasters, and third is to support children, and fourth is to support the elder population. Out of all the four, we especially focus on our effort for the people with disabilities. And I would, am one of the strong believers that the education for all would have to encompass all the people with disabilities so that there will be an opportunity for equal education for all these people together. Especially when we look at the developing countries, there are still very many people, especially children, who does not have the access to the education. And that's one of the reasons why that I myself is personally engaged in visiting all these countries so that the children would have the equal opportunity to be able to access to education. And I think that the cooperation in this field is one of the major role for us to play. まあ、特に私はねあのハイヤーエデュケーションいわゆる大学教育を受けて成功例をね作っていくことによって盲人の皆さんがやはり意欲的にやはり勉強するといいなと社会でいい職業も得られるということでやはり高等教育を受けて成功例をたくさん作っていくというのが。大変大事だと私は思っておりますそうでありませんと小学校中学校で辞めてしまうとなかなか職業を受ける機会がないわけでございますので可能な限りやっぱり大学教育が受けられるような仕組みを作りたいと思っています
in order for us to do so, I also believe that the people、uh, need to go through the higher education as well. So what we can do is to reach and、uh, to come up with the success cases. Uh, for the blind people、uh, who achieve the higher education, being able to access to a very good work in the society, and because of the, these cases, I think that the people、uh, with the blind would be able to feel more aspired to be able to access to higher education. If they stop their education at the elementary school level or at the junior high school level, then it is natural that they would not be able to access to a very good job. Therefore, if we can introduce、uh, these people so that they can go to the higher education to be able to access to the jobs, would become of one of the success cases, and I would like that to see that happening throughout the world. One of the things that I personally have been involved with is making online learning accessible through working with companies that provide online learning management systems used by colleges and universities across the globe. It's not been an easy thing to do. We've utilized Moodle, that's like Noodle but with an M as in mother. We've used Blackboard and a number of other different online learning management systems, and frequently find blocks between the blind and visually impaired student and the content in those courses. Have your, has your foundation been at all involved with making online learning available so that individuals who are blind or visually impaired do not have to expend all their funds in going to and living on campuses? I can access it remotely. あの私自身その教育といった部分に関してはオンラインの教,教育などに、まあ、実際私自身も関わってまいりましたやはりその目が不自由な方々というのは場合によってはその大学にわざわざ通ったりもしくはキャンパスで勉強するということはあまりにもお金がかかりすぎてできないという方もいるのでそのオンラインを介してその教育をしていくというのが非常に重要だと思っていますで、まあ、大学などでもこういったそのオンライン上の教育管理システムというのを使うことによってそのできる限りその遠隔地においてもオンライン上で教育の受けられる機会というのを提供されていたりするんですけれどもやはり目が不自由であったりするとそれもまだ十分行き届いていないという実情でありますですから財団などは、まあ、そういったところのオンライン上の教育などは支援などをしていらっしゃるのでしょうかというのが次の質問です今私たちはね、あのー、シンガポールを中心にね、はいアジアの,あのデフの教育に、ね、オンラインシステムを使ってあのうまくうやっておりますがもちろんあなたがおっしゃったことに私たちは大変興味を持っておりますし、えー、これからあ盲人の教育についてね、えー、さらに積極的に協力支援活動を展開していきたいと思っておりますので、いろいろなアイデアがあったらぜひまた私どもに教えてください。Um, talking about Malaysia, we are supporting、um, the online education to the deaf people, and I do、uh, think that 
Similar kind of the educational support for the people with visual impairment would also be necessary. Therefore, I am quite interested in knowing what are the things that needs to be done uh, in this field, like you have just mentioned, so that we would be able to be instrumental in making the situation better for the visual impaired uh, people. So if you have any ideas as to what we would be able to do to support those people, then that would be appreciated so that we can utilize those knowledge or idea so that we can better the support to reach to those people. Thank you very much for that kind offer. I'm reaching into my pocket for my business card. Mm -hmm. In this room, in Malaysia, Vietnam, Bhutan, mm. Thailand, Indonesia, there are gentlemen who over the course of the past 15 years have come to where I work, the Carroll Center for the Blind in Newton, Massachusetts by Boston mm. and have received computer training there, mm. then taken that training back to their countries in order to incorporate their knowledge and make it available to their fellow countrymen. Uh, a gentleman named Kinga from Bhutan works mm. at the School for the Blind in Bhutan and he brings that technology learning to his students uh, and a gentleman named Moses from Malaysia is doing similar in his nation. Dan Phuc of Vietnam is doing similar in his nation. So again that computer literacy is an important part and the way that we can provide that most effectively to as many people as possible as most cost-effective as possible mm -hmm. is probably through the online approach. Mm. So if I may provide you with my card. Thank you. And if you're interested in pursuing that, I'd be more than happy to help facilitate that. I am very impressed with the breadth, but also the focus of your foundation, realizing there are many aspects of blindness and low vision and disability. When you and your family became involved in this process. Was there a personal connection to people with disabilities? Or is this something that you have come to understand through your travels? あの、今いろいろな各国の国々、マレーやベトナム、ブータン、タイ、そしてインドネシアなどからの出席者もこちらの部屋の中にお集まりでいらっしゃいます。で、私自身過去15年ほどキャロルセンターフォーブラインドという
というのがそちらに向けられたということなのでしょうか、はい、私はね40年にわたってね世界からレプロシーをなくす活動をしております。毎年1年の3分の1から4分の1ぐらいをそのために発展途上国を回っております。ハンセン病レプロシーはね病気を治すことと長い間の偏見差別にさらされてきた人たちです。そういう人たちの中の障害者の悲惨な状況を見ながら。私は障害者の問題について強い関心を持つようになりました同じ人間として生まれてこのような過酷な差別を受けている現状を見ましてね少しでも改善に役立ちたいと思っておりますご指摘のように IT テクノロジーの進歩というものがこういう障害を持った人たちねの教育について非常に大きなツールになりましたし結果的に彼らがまたそういう分野で仕事を持つことができるようになりますし高等教育を受けてくれればそれぞれの国のリーダーになってくれることということでそれぞれの国の盲人の指導者になってもらうことによってそれぞれの国の社会がインクルーシブな社会に変わっていくための大きな指導者を養成するツールが私は IT のテクノロジーだと思っておりますので我々はこれから積極的に今までデフの分野では相当やってきてるんですけども盲人についても幅広く世界的な取り組みを展開したいと思っております。For the last 40 years, I myself have been devoting、uh, my effort、uh, to the leprosy、uh, affected people. When it comes to leprosy, this is the area that actually brings、uh, quite a number of people with disabilities as well. And this is one of the reasons why that I am spending one third to one quarter of an year、uh, to spend in the developing countries trying to tackle this very issue of leprosy. Leprosy Has a twofold area for us to tackle. One is to overcome the illness itself, and the second area is to eliminate stigma and discrimination towards these leprosy affected people. And、uh, people who have a disability、uh, and at the same time、uh, being leprosy、uh, is quite、uh, living in a quite a harsh、uh, environment all these life. Therefore, I had To kind of make myself committed、uh, to improve their lives so that their life would be more, much more improved and does not have to bear their life with discrimination and stigma. And for that, I think that the education、uh, for various people to understand more about what disability is all about would become essential. For that, I think that the recent IT technological development、uh, has been. Uh, helping very much in this area when it comes to education for the people with disabilities because this、uh, IT technology is playing a tremendous tool、uh, in this educational field. And we have been quite active 
uh, to support the deaf people and deaf community in terms of utilization of this technology for education. But I think that the similar kind of education would be essential for the visual impaired uh, communities as well. And if they are able to access to a higher education, then these people would be able to become the leader of their blind community in their home countries and at the same time drive changes to their society to create an inclusive society for all. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come and speak with us and again to extend to both the appreciation of these two organizations of which I'm part and also my personal gratitude for a person who himself does not have a disability understanding the importance of a totally inclusive society. I also wish to uh, ask that as you go about and speak with blind people, to speak with those who provide services for blind people, that you tell them the story of the WBU, mm -hmm. this organization that is equal parts blind people mm -hmm. and those serving blind mm -hmm. people. In partnership, we can do so much. まあ、わかりました。私どもの組織は単に会議で発言するだけではなくて、行動する、実践をする財団でございますので、どうぞ期待してください。Please count on us because our foundation is not just to make lectures in many big conferences or conventions, but rather we actually take actions. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thank you again. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Larry, it's back to you. Okay. That was a great uh, interview. I, uh, I'm always interested in how the disabled community deals with different natural disasters and stuff like that because God knows we have so many of them. Yeah, and it, this is one of those things when, as we talk about what it means to be a blind or visually impaired person, there is the education side of things, kind of the yes. central of what you're going to be able to accomplish with your life. A, a true belief among the blindness community, among those who work with those who are blind, is education is a way out of some of the things we have little or no control over, that is societal attitudes, a much harder thing to deal with. Then you have this other issue, and that is that the very nature of the logistics of being a person with a disability adds complexity to our lives. You're one of those people out there who are showing the world through your internet radio show that a blind person who's interested in certainly can be capable of maintaining their own home, for example. Absolutely. Dealing with emergency preparations uh, is part of that whole process of taking control of parts of our lives rather than relying on others to do it for us. I think about the people who have experienced natural disasters. In our news media, mostly what we hear of are the giant disasters, as with the tsunami in Japan, as with the, um, well, what can I say? Typhoons, hurricanes, earthquakes that happen around the globe. Yes. Uh, the floods. And these do not care 
about what nation they're occurring in. No, and I, you know, of course, and I personally dealt with the hurricane back in 2004. Um, While you were here in Florida, correct? Yes, I was living here in Orlando, actually. And Hurricane Charlie came in from the Gulf and cut a path across uh, central Florida before exiting out into the Atlantic Ocean. And how did your home fare through that? I was living with a couple of friends at the time, and there was some minor damage. Um, but Orlando, the, our part of it anyway, out by the airport and the east side of Orlando, was torn apart pretty badly. And we had no electric, no phone service, very spotty cell service for about eight days. Yeah, and it and it's something that you have to live with, but it has that other wrinkle of of the blindness side of things. Yes. The, recently, the as we have had these floods in Louisiana, one of the things that's occurred as a result of that is much of the wildlife has been displaced. So there's alligators where you don't expect them to be. Snakes Let's face too. it: <laughs> a blind person walking down the street, totally independent, cane in hand, is not going to be able to anticipate an alligator where an alligator shouldn't be, a snake where a snake shouldn't be. They can show appropriate concern and preparation for such things, but it's just simply part of life that we cannot see and therefore avoid the unexpected in the scheme of things. And down power lines, that's another thing you have to really watch out for. Exactly. When something like that happens because the, most of the canes... The, especially the older ones are metal and you touch a power line with that <laughs> yes exactly you got to be careful about these yes. kinds of things we also have to uh, and we we have done quite a bit through fema to make sure that our blind and visually impaired members of the american council of the blind and other organizations have an opportunity to learn about how to be prepared in terms of stocking up on foods and supplies and medications even guide dog users we have in our house a go bag that's specific for the service animal in our household so that if we have to live without water coming through the faucets live without heat in the house uh, live without going to the grocery store because we're out of something we have ourselves all prepared for that, not only for ourselves, but, but for our service animal as well. Absolutely. So emergency preparation, how do societies themselves deal with it? I was very moved by uh, our interviewees' comments about the likelihood of perishing from a natural disaster and what took place in Japan that twice the percentage of people with disabilities lost their lives as those without disabilities as a result of the society itself not thinking about that. Right. Well, then, not only was it the earthquake itself, but the fact that that nuclear power plant, uh, the core cracking open, really amplified absolutely. a lot of the people who were affected, who were by, affected that. by that. Exactly. Increasing the number of people with disabilities, uh, people with disabilities themselves being disadvantaged in those uh, emergency situations. So many, many things that we have to concern ourselves with. Uh, again, you never remember as well as when you're here at the WBU that what's one person's primary problem might be so fundamental that you can't even imagine it. The gentleman who 
said that most of the people in his country can't afford a white cane, while we're worried about whether or not uh, audible traffic signals are in the correct place. Both are a matter of personal safety and survival, but they're at, at different levels, different uh, areas of intervention being required to make those things happen. So it's great that there are foundations like the Nippon Foundation who can assist in funding. And as you heard during the interview, not just funding these things, not just going to conferences like this and speaking the good word, but also being action-oriented. That gentleman by himself expects to spend a quarter of his year, each year, visiting third world nations where there are people who are suffering with leprosy, the stigma of leprosy, the disabilities that come along with leprosy, to make sure that through his personal engagement, their lives will be improved. It's a, it's a very laudable thing to do, and I imagine that in each case of all the men and women in this room, they're all doing some variation of that very thing, bringing yeah, to it more than they take from them. it. Absolutely. You know, some people think that uh, when you do these international traveling operations that, you know, this is your opportunity to have this great paid vacation or whatever. Let me tell you, that's not the nature of what drives these men and women. They're very aware of what's going on back home and how they can impact that. They're also very aware that uh, together we can make things better. But if we spend all of our time focusing on only our very narrow needs within our society, that we're really not improving the lives of blind people. Again, like natural disasters, blindness has no borders. It's everywhere, uh, and it's likely to stay that way. You know, it was interesting when uh, he was talking about the four different pillars of his foundation being people with disabilities, children, elders, and natural disasters, right? Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, there are people with disabilities who experience national disa- natural disasters. Blindness has a great deal to do with the aging process. Uh, and of course, the education of blind children, which is the second organization that joined the WBU for the balance of this week. I-C-E-V-I. Other people can rattle those letters off better than I do. How about you, Larry? Uh, I can do it pretty well. Go for it. Say it. I-C-E-V-I. See, he's good at that. Me, (laughs) mm, it's almost a tongue twister. International Council of Education of Visually Impaired. There you go. We've been using WBU so much up to this point that we have to start sprinkling that I-C-E-V-I into our language as well. Yes. Have you ever met any of these folks? sessions uh, over the next three days. I've met a few of them. I was coming down the hallway here on the way to the opening session this morning, and suddenly I was grabbed from behind uh, with a, a laughing female a vo- <laughs> voice, right? <laughs> and it was a woman by the name of Narit, and Narit uh, and I have worked off and on together for the past 20 years. She's from Israel. She's a researcher educator uh, and travels the world dealing with issues of education and those who are blind or visually impaired. Uh, She was successful at inviting Kim and I out to Israel a number of years back to speak before the Parents Association there, as well as a Teachers Association in Israel. And it was 
heartening to see the commitment of people in Israel, and I'm referring to those who are Christian, Jews, Muslim, uh, both those from either side of what we now think of as, as these highly drawn lines. And Nareet keeps doing the fight year yeah, after that's year great. after year. She keeps it going. Well, it's 11 o'clock, so I'm going to Time send to you back on. I'm going to send you back up to the podium, and they should be getting underway very shortly here at the 2016 World Blind Union and ICVEI conventions and general assembly. People may, if they wish, I don't know. SK? Yes. How are you? Yeah, I was looking for you too. Oh, okay, and I was looking for you too. Uh-huh. Anyway, then they. Uh, so guys, there are going to be comments, I'm sure. There'll be comments, there'll be questions, and they can they can propose amendments if they want. No, uh, I just wanted to check with you. How are you comfortable moving ahead with the resolutions? Well, here's what I think we ought to do. Um, if you say we're going to do resolutions and introduce me, I will give the report of the committee. I will then be prepared to present the resolution. One by one. One by one. And then I will call for the comments? Yes. On each of the resolutions? Yes. And then it will be moved? Then you will call for the vote one way or the other. Is that acceptable? Yes, it is. And uh, if there are amendments to the... Uh, then also we will take them and get it voted. Yes. And, and we are not going to accept any more resolution no. from the floor? No. Right. Resolutions period closed on the 19th. I should make it clear in the opening yes. open itself. Yes. So that uh, people were. don't try to move. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, if they want more resolutions, it's too late. Um, the time for resolutions yes. is over. There were nine resolutions presented. I'm going to talk about that. Three of them were rejected by the committee, and I will uh, specify what those resolutions were I think and why they were. Gave them well, I'm not going to take them at all. They're rejected by the committee. Unless the General Assembly votes to overturn the decision of the committee. No, no, because in your report, you will definitely say which resolution yes. you are rejecting. Yes. And probably why you are rejecting Yes. Probably. Yes. Yes. And as per your discussion. All of that is going to be in the report. Okay. And, um, I'm not so first you will present the report. Yes. And then, and then the resolutions. One by one. Yeah. Then the resolutions one by one. And there are six uh, that are coming. Are we calling the committee members also? I am going to, I'm going to mention their names. Uh, they're welcome to come up if they want, but I don't But I will leave it to you. I don't think they're all that. here. But I will leave it to you on that. Okay, good. Right? All right. Okay. Great. So should we stop? Well, is it 11? Yes, yeah, a little bit after. Yeah. Oh, well, then it's time to go. Hi, Steph. Hi. Um, we have a request for a couple announcements. I think should be made right at the beginning. No one knows that there are water bottles or drinkable water at the sides of the room here that they can drink the tap water in their rooms. So we've gotten reports of a lot of people being dehydrated this week. Oh. Yes. Um, I'll talk about that. Thank you. Or else, well, I'll talk about it. That works. Great. And then when we open it up to questions, which of you will be acknowledging? SK is going to do that. Okay. Okay, I SK will do. You just indicate to me okay. the names of the countries, yes. and I will call. So let's go, shall we? Yes. Right here. Podium. Yes. <coughs> yes. Are the people still coming? Good morning, dear delegates.
May I request you all to please take your seats. We are into a very important session, probably the most important session of the Assembly, and which is resolution session. May I have your indulgence to begin this session? Good morning, dear delegates. Now, we are into the most important session, as I said. We are going to deal with the resolutions. And uh, as you know, the resolution committee has been chaired by the most experienced as well as our senior leader, Dr. Mike, Mark Murrer. He will introduce his committee members and present his report. Before I request Dr. Mark to present his report and present the resolutions one by one, I would like to, in order to conduct this session, to point out the following and request you to please cooperate with me in adhering to these uh, little requests. The first one is that the session would be structured like this. Dr. Mark will present the report, followed by presentation of resolutions one by one. We will invite comments on each resolution after it has been presented by the chair of the committee. If, and we will not allow intervention more than 90 seconds, which is the general norm, and every chair has been doing that. It is because of the paucity of time and also to ensure that more and pe more people are able to participate. Only one intervention from one country. If you want to move any amendment to a given resolution, if you have a seconder, then only it will be considered. If there, is, there seems to be a division on any resolution, we'll take it to vote. Now, with these little uh, requests that I want to make to, 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 to uh, seek your cooperation to conduct this session in most effective manner, I now would request Dr. Mark to present his report and then followed by the presentation of resolution one by one. Dr. Mark, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Rungta. The nominating, I mean, the resolutions committee has been appointed to consider resolutions presented for uh, consideration by the General Assembly. There are five members of the committee. I chair it. I am from the United States. John Heilbrunn from Denmark. Uh, Montian Buntan from Thailand. Ellie Matcha from Tanzania. 
and Volmir Raimundi from uh, Brazil. The committee was informed that its charge is to accept resolutions and to present them to the General Assembly if the resolutions uh, deal with matters of policy that are world in scope uh, that have a possibility of achievement that uh, are within the competence of the World Blind Union and um, that um, are not just wishes for good feeling or something of the sort. We have received nine resolutions. We are presenting six. Three of them were rejected by the committee. There was one that dealt with the importance of gender equality, and uh, we thought that gender equality was important, but we've already adopted that policy, so we're not putting it forward. There was one that dealt with uh, violence against gay and lesbian individuals, and though we have sympathy for gay and lesbian individuals, the competence of the World Blind Union deals with blindness and visual impairment, and so we have rejected that one. There was one uh, that uh, dealt with only one country, specifically directed at the United States. It was not a world resolution, but one directed at a single nation, and we rejected that. There was a spirited debate about whether we had the right to express an opinion about the resolutions, the propriety of them, and we determined that we do not have that right. We are to present them that came from the people who wrote them. We are not to vote on whether we think they're a good idea or a bad idea. There were many in the committee who thought we might vote on that, but I understand that our uh, task is to determine which ones are appropriate for presentation and then to present them without comment. There was also a spirited debate about what form the resolutions should take. Uh, John Heilbrunn expressed the view that they should be presented as written. Uh, after a spirited conversation, the committee acceded to this point of view. Consequently, the resolutions will be presented as they have been written without modification. With that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm prepared to proceed with the resolutions if you are ready for that. Very well. Resolution number one. Resolution to the World Blind Union 9th General Assembly, 1825, August 2016, establishing a World Blind Union Empowerment Award. To combat the challenges that persons with visual impairment are facing globally, WBU and its member organizations require knowledge, experience, and commitment from blind and partially sighted men and women alike. To realize the rights of persons with visual impairment requires representation and participation of all, and to that end, inclusion and empowerment of women is crucial. The World Blind Human Union 9th General Assembly gathered 1825 August in Orlando, Florida resolves, one, 
to call upon all member organizations of WBU to further encourage women's participation and representation within the national and regional organizations of persons with visual impairment as well as within WBU itself. Two, to acknowledge the importance of empowering all women through education and training to ensure that they develop the knowledge and skills needed to participate to a greater extent within leadership and advocacy. Three, to establish the World Blind Union's Empowerment Award. The Empowerment Award will be presented yearly to one member organization that has made significant progress in terms of gender equality through increased empowerment, participation, and representation of women. The WBU's Women's Network will coordinate and select a winner according to the criteria to be decided by the Women's Network itself, as well as present the winners at an award ceremony each General Assembly, this presented by the Swedish Association of the Blind. Mr. Chairman. Any comments, intervention on this resolution? Yes. Who is it? Aunt, you have the floor, please. Thank you. Um, I think the resolution is, is very good. Um, I only have one concern, and that is that uh, it is said that this is going to happen yearly because I think that will uh, uh, make it, we, we have to have a kind of procedure, and I, I know that this will take some time. Uh, applications uh, shall come in, and we, we are going to look through. Um, I, I think we have a good tradition in World Brand Union when we are presenting the, the awards in the General Assemblies and also the regional uh, 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 parts of Verbrand uh, Union can do also a kind of um, award if they want to do that. But I, I think in Verbrand Union uh, as it is, it's, uh, we, we should have um, that kind of awards linked to the General Assemblies and uh, have it every four years. Uh. Can I request the mover of the resolution, Swedish? It was Swedish Association. Yes. Swedish. Yes. Can, can Swedish uh, organization? Can you? Will you react to this proposal of Aunt, which is basically that instead of one year, we should have the award every four year, one award, following the same? Can someone give mic to? Yes. Uh, this is Anne Johnson from from Sweden. Uh, we uh, we accept it. It's a good uh, proposal, Aunt. Okay. So that uh, uh, I think uh, that means we will amend this resolution as presented by uh, saying that the award will be given to one member organization every four year at the time of general assembly, right? Is that all right, uh, Aunt? Okay. 
Any other intervention? Guatemala. Gracias, muy buenos días. Thank you, Jorge Luis López from Guatemala. We believe that this very interesting, this resolution is very good. My question may sound a little bit um, attached to ignorance or maybe going ahead of myself, but together with this resolution, what are the procedures going to be so that we could know the basis and the parameters in order to apply to this kind of uh, question? Can you please repeat this? Uh, we missed on this. The translation part. Guatemala, can you repeat? Yes. The question, the direct question, and as I was saying, I hope that I'm not just getting ahead of myself, but the resolution seems very good to us as an organization. And I ask if there is already an estimated time within which the organizations will know which are going to be the basis and the parameters that will be considered in order to apply to be candidates for this for this award. Can you Okay, thank you. Um, this is because this is a resolution that is is just being under consideration. Um, there have been no processes obviously developed for it. If it is approved, then it will become part of the planning process for the new officers when they have their their first meeting, and that would include um, probably assigning it to a working group, setting up processes and procedures, and so. The members would be informed in, in, in due course. Okay. Uh, Philippines? Yeah, uh, good morning, everybody. It's Teddy from the Philippines. Um, hearing the some comments of some other gentlemen from other countries, I therefore move uh, as amended for the adoption of this resolution, Mr. Chair. Uh, I have not yet put this. Uh, interventions, please. Denmark. This is uh, Torkel Olesen, president of the Danish Association of the Blind. I think this will be the uh, resolution number 20 about gender equality, and I think it is all right. But the thing that I think is needed, if the scope of this, uh, inter this uh, resolution is to uh, empower women uh, in uh, the organization, I think that the organization should take responsibility in making the terms and making the um, the uh, the decision about who's uh, who will have this uh, this uh, award, and I don't uh, I think it has to be done in the uh, proper manners in the uh, organs we know. So I think it has to be done uh, so that uh, the officers uh, should take the decision who will have the award, because if it if it is done in the women's network then I don't think we will get any uh, more inclusion of uh, gender in, uh, in the organization in a, as a whole. 
So I'm, I would like that it, it is uh, a, a part of the officer's uh, job to uh, decide who will receive this award and the terms of the reward. That means you are saying that uh, the resolution as, 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 as proposed gives the authority to women's network. Instead of women's network, the officers of WBU should decide, right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, Swedish, can I go back to the mover of the resolution? Chair, could I just try to help out of this? Because please, sir. Please, sir. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think we are now um, going to the very detailed things. We have a resolution, and, and the text is there. Um, the main thing with this resolution, I think, is the, is the award and, and that part of it, and also, of course, the policy uh, which is said here. Um, I, I will suggest that this resolution is uh, accepted in principle, but uh, been sent to uh, to the officers, so we can uh, find ways to handle it in the future. I guess we must uh, uh, develop guidelines for this award and uh, how the process should go on, and then we can discuss it there uh, how we are doing it. Uh, I don't think it's uh, we are we are using time on the details now, so I, I think that could be a way, way out of it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, uh, Aunt. Uh, uh, President uh, Danish Association, uh, I think, would you agree or you would insist on the amendment? I really uh, think that the president nailed it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. So now I think there are no other interventions. And now uh, is somebody moving it? I take it that Swedish moves it and Philippines uh, wanted to move. So can I take that they are seconding it? Can I? Those who are in favor say aye. Those, those who are against it say no. Ayes have it. Now, uh, Dr. Mark, please. Next section. Resolution number two. Proposal for resolution from Japan. Working group on the review of membership fee structure, rationale one. The economic indicators do not necessarily reflect the financial status of member organizations. Two, the population number of a country is not necessarily proportionate to the number of blind 
and partially sighted persons within that country. Three, overdependence on membership fees uh, borne by a small number of member organizations may jeopardize the sustainability of that organization, whether it is in a developed country or not, thus eventually jeopardizing the sustainability of WBU itself. Four, some countries where the three official languages are not spoken on a daily basis may find it overwhelmingly challenging to fulfill the quantitative obligation of seating the number of delegates capable of communicating in these languages in the international platforms which will significantly degrade the meaning of having the stipulated number of votes. Four, uh, five, certain internal factors that are not visible through publicized indicators such as the budget in its entirety and the budget available for international activities may present significant impact on the membership fee issues of member organizations. Six, there are some issues around the current membership fee structure in terms of fairness, reasonableness, and feasibility in light of the fact that a great number of member organizations are having problem keeping up the payment in a timely manner. This is particularly evident when compared with fee structure of other international disabled people's organizations, IDPOs. The question may also arise with the practice of fee increases in proportion to the inflation rate of a country which does not necessarily coincide with other countries and which weighs heavily on those classified as high-income countries. Re resolution. The Ninth Gen uh, World Blind Union General Assembly resolves that a working group should be set up comprising of WBU President, Treasurer, Secretary General, and representatives from the regional unions to review overall membership fee structure and policies, including the number of delegates and indicators for evaluation, as well as reasonableness of budget and expenses allocations the result of this should be presented at the 10th General Assembly and uh, presented by Japan, specifically contact Chuji Sashida. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Uh, Is it on? Hmm. Uh, before uh, I invite interventions uh, for the second resolution, I stand corrected when I declared the first resolution passed as it is first resolution passed as amended in terms of the suggestion of Aunt Holte, our outgoing president. Now, uh, any interventions on the second resolution as proposed? Yes. 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 Uh, which country? Marian, please. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you. This is Marianne speaking. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Uh, and thank you, Japan, for your thought-through resolution. I, I don't support the resolution for the following reasons. That the membership fee structure that we have in place now was developed over two years and brought in at the General Assembly in Geneva. It uses four different indexes in determining the different levels, the four different levels within our organisation. Only one of those is an economic um, indicator. The others are social indicators. I think that's really important. Secondly, that part of the membership fee structure that we introduced in 2008 has mechanisms by which member organisations who are unable to, for whatever reason, pay the fee allocated to their country's category can apply for um, a, a reduction in fee based on their circumstances. We already have a committee in place of the chaired by the Treasurer with representations of all the regions to consider all applications for fee relief and, for example, um, translation of documents in lieu of fees. I think the mechanisms exist. I think the issue is about members utilising those mechanisms to ensure that they can pay what they are able to based on the current circumstances because we know they can change. That committee can kind of have discussion about the, the, the fee structure at any time. I, I just think we have a mechanism in place. We have better payment of membership fees than we've ever had. There is some, some room for improvement, but I urge those who are not paying the fees to utilise the systems we already have in place because we have given a lot of fee relief and reduction to many members. So my personal view is we have this in place. We need to just use what we have in place without introducing another um, resolution to do a whole lot of work in the next term. Thank you. Gambia. Gambia. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, this is Mohammed from the Gambia. Um, let me just first say that I'm definitely in complete agreement with what the speaker has just said, but just to add something. Um, that is, uh, I quite agree, especially um, with regard to the fee relief, which is very much important to some of the countries that are not able to uh, meet uh, the fees. Um, what I just want to add is this. Uh, um, Bearing uh, in mind the fact that uh, um, some countries are not even able to make it here because they are not uh, in good financial standing with uh, WBU, which uh, we are very, very, very much strict of. Um, but the reality is sometimes certain organizations, they definitely have uh, uh, the intention and the will to pay the membership fees, but the fact that... Uh, you know, the economic situations, you know, of their countries, you know, such as my, my, my own country and others, are not very good. So national organizations are not able to meet of, uh, the, the, the membership fees. So I am very much in for um, the fee to stay as how it is, and definitely I wouldn't want to advocate for any increment, and I want to recommend uh, WBU at least... I know it is not going to be easy, but if we can set aside or if we can create another scheme that can also look into the payment of these member fees, uh, membership fees 
to ensure that if any particular country that has an organization as a member of WBU uh, that finds it difficult to pay and is able to forward very good reason and just cause, then this particular scheme that has been created um, upon the recommendation that definitely they find it difficult to pay can come in to assist payment so that WBU you know, can still keep up running because without finance, we'll have, have, find it very difficult. Thank you. Denmark. Thank you. And BADs, I have nothing to say to all the resolutions. So, but I would like to add to, I agree with, the, with Marian, and I would like to add to what she said, that I think it is important that uh, the general secretary uh, will, uh, secretary general will take more active, a more active role in uh, trying to help the organizations who are not, uh, who has, are not, fun, not financial in working out how to pay so I think it would be more, it, ha, it has to be, uh, the workforce has to be used in, in, in doing that instead of making a lot of work on a structure we already have agreed on. And I think we have a lot of other things to do as well. Argentina. Buenos días. A todas y a todos. everyone. I'm Fernando Galarraga from the Argentine Federation of the Blind. And first of all, I would like to, like to thank Japan for their presentation, for this resolution. And uh, please take into account, uh, all of you, that the presentation is done by a developed country and not one of the many or the majority of the countries that are underdeveloped and who every year and fundamentally previous to these uh, meetings, they have a lot of difficulties paying their their um, quota. And uh, and the second information is that the, uh, the treasurer for the... WBU made in many presentations uh, the, the call to be able to pay those rates and he mentioned a huge amount that is still to be collected and is seen as lost at the end of any balance here or should be done like that and because of that this shows that um, more than all the different mechanisms that are there established to be able to help the countries that have difficulties, more than simply seeing that there is a great importance of the countries that are paying their dues, this amount allows us to think or allows us to have the possibility of rethink again the different mechanisms that we have existing. And from what I understood, the resolution is not stating to reduce the dues or change it or is doing any proposal, a concrete proposal in relationship to that, um, that actual system. It's just saying that there should be a group that has to be created to study the situation. And so I think that as an organization that is technical, political at the worldwide level, we can never renounce the possibility of debating internally or study the mechanisms that allow us or make it possible for us to have a more participation of all our members worldwide. So I think that we, as a country, we invite strongly all the delegates to be able to support this resolution so that we can have a group, an internal group that can study this issue. And this study would allow the 
WBU to be able to see if what we have at the present is working or if we can introduce some modifications that can allow the improvement of the receiving of the dues and also increasing the participation of all our countries. Thank you very much. Brazil. Brazil. Thank you and good morning. I would like to also say hello and say thank you for to Japan and um, they're very thankful for the resolution. And uh, I just wanted to say that we are working for a, a WBU and we're always seeing an, an evolution. And we evol to evolve allows us to be able to uh, think. It means that we're going to have the possibility or the chance of being able to propose new things. It means having the possibility to be to be able to grow and and construct things together. So what this resolution is proposing is to be able to have the possibility of having a way uh, that maybe uh, it could take us uh, to a, a new paradigm with uh, even more just do's or possibilities, uh, new possibilities, or maybe it could even uh, stimulate more countries to participate and strengthen our organization. So we're not saying that we want to take anything out. We are not all saying either that we want to reduce the dues. But mainly, we just want to stimulate to be able to think about strategies so that more countries can be included within the WBU, which I think we think is a stronger organization and who has a great deal of participation. And we do want more participation. And there are some countries that are not in, included yet. And we can see that there's a lot of difficulties. We have to listen. We have to be more creative. And... We have to respect the different things that we see in the world. We see a lot of changes in the world, with a lot of changes that are very quick, and the WBU and the UNICEF that we say cannot uh, turn their eye on these situations. And so I think that uh, I ask the delegates and that are here that we vote favorably towards this resolution. Thank you. Can I make a request? Uh can I make a request? Could you be a little brief in your interventions, please? And don't repeat. I know this is a very important issue, but uh, please, that's my request. Uh, Cameroon? Merci beaucoup, Monsieur le Président. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chair. Um, Aunt. Yes. Sitting here listening, I think this resolution will be more like uh, dividing our General Assembly. Uh, I, I get the impression that there will be a voting. Uh, and uh, could I suggest that, that we are sending this resolution into the process, uh, which we are going to go, um, start immediately after General Assembly, uh, looking after our uh, in, in looking into our future policy, because I think we already have um, people there, and we are. I, I can promise you, it's it's not so that we not are discussing the system in amongst the officers. We have done that in every meeting in the membership fee committee, tried to find other solutions. And to be honest, I don't think a total review of the system will lead to more membership fees. 
uh, I think that is not very truly. So, so I, I will suggest, Chair, that we are not voting on the on the resolution today, but we send it to the to the officers and look. We we, we look carefully into it. We see if there are any possibilities to change the system, and we will come back to that. I think deciding today that it should be um, should be. Uh, changed is uh, is not the right way to do this. I think we need to look into it and come back with it. But deciding today that we are going to change it will not functioning. That is my view. Uh, I, as uh, I, I would tend to agree with what you say, Aunt. But uh, I am sitting in a hot seat. The resolution has been moved, has been presented, and there are still some interventions. I see that house is quite divided. Can I, though a chair should not say, but can I suggest something adding to what aunt said? And if that is acceptable to the house. I don't see much difference in what aunt said and what this resolution says. This resolution also in a way only urges upon the officers to reconsider and see, I mean set in place a, a process of rethinking of functioning of this mechanism and wherever possible if any modifications are required to, to, to undertake the exercise of proposing a modification to be presented to the next General Assembly. Today, in fact, we are not deciding either way, even if we pass this resolution. So, if, uh, I don't know, uh, what aunt is saying also is sending it to the, this resolution to the officers. So if, when this resolution has been presented, the assembly, assembly will have to make a decision either way. Can we, can we just say this, subject to uh, acceptance by the assembly and the mover of the resolution, that the officers or the group, a group to be constituted by the officers should look into the reasons and functioning of this mechanism and report to the next General Assembly the, 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 their, their assessment and let the general, next General Assembly take a decision based on the report of the officers. If that is acceptable, probably that could be a way out which aunt is suggesting. Because anyway, we have to find a way out to send it to the officers. For that also we would require a motion. Is that acceptable, Japan? No. <laughs> So, 
as i said i am in the hot seat i knew that so let me let me let me let me let me continue with the process then let me continue with the process then mr chairman this is a proper resolution that the committee puts forward uh, as it is within the scope of what the world blind union general assembly has I, to decide so i agree sir i agree yeah. having moved it we have to take a decision either way so uh, now uh, yes uh, i think i i i i recognized cameroon right yes no no let oui. let cameroon first let cameroon first oui oui monsieur le <coughs> monsieur le président, président je voulais i wanted to uh, salute uh, this resolution because when there isn't a resolution we cannot uh, statute we cannot have a statute on what's going on however i wanted to say that uh, be, since the secretary general just was elected and uh, taking in consideration that he's going to take his function the existing structure of the revision and the study the 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 uh, the fees of the different organization should have a structure in place we should talk about reinforcing this structure the one that is already existing because i'm afraid that uh, this structure uh, will lead to a creation of something that will not be efficient we know uh, to the point uh, how this structure has been put in place since 2008 uh, has been working uh, and uh, the majority of the members can uh, see uh, the uh, fees being reduced in consideration of their situation of economical situation and I would talk uh, uh, and uh, please uh, I I'm finishing up here uh, I just want to say that to reinforce this existing structure, this is what should be done. This is, we have to do this. Thank you. Uh, before I call upon the next uh, member country, I would again request, I will strictly now adhere to 90 seconds. Please. I know this is very important, but you are making my seat more hotter. Every intervention is making it hotter. So, <laughs> uh, I recognize Nicaragua now. 90 seconds, I will give this. David de Nicaragua. In Ginebra, 2008, one of the countries that was questioning this system, this fee system, was Iceland, which is a Nordic country, which is cataloged as developed with 500,000 inhabitants, but whose organization did not reflect the situation of the country as it's cataloged by the evaluation systems. Two. Japan is not requesting that we reduce the fees, so just to be revised, and therefore to give them a faster or sooner action for the commission that is existing at the moment. This is something that we can intuit from this resolution. And third, the 
WBU must be the best example of inclusion that nobody be left behind. Por favor, termine. Next, Lebanon. I will be I will be very strict now. Please, I have to manage time. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, I propose uh, to go on uh, instead with, of their recommendation saying establish a working group for this purpose. Uh, I suggest if to say this recommendation to open to 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 uh, put this matter that they raise uh, through their uh, reasons uh, why they put this recommendation, to put this matter on the agenda of the executive committee of WBU for discussions and uh, taking decisions, where the executive has all the region's representatives and all the officers of uh, WBU. So I propose this amendment. Thank you. Guatemala. Gracias. Este... Thank you. The establishment of a analysis group for the fees, uh, for the dues for, for the WBU, we think it's something good, it's something that's important for us, is that if, if without any inconvenience here or one of the, um, of the uh, important points would be the, the, the budget or the WBU budget must be, we must be very careful with it because when we establish a new working group, that we want there not to be a new added cost that would represent a greater amount that we can actually collect or that we're trying to collect by way of this group. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Canada? Thank you. This is Charles Mossop speaking. I, I it is clear that we can't come to an agreement on a line-by-line line this resolution now. It's important to remind ourselves that we do have a membership fees committee which is fully representative of all the regions. And that committee has the power to request documentation, proposals, resolutions, ideas, and plans from throughout all of our regions. We should refer this to them. The structure is constantly under revision each time the officers meet that committee meets this is something which is foremost in our minds all the time a special working group would add another layer if you like we've done it two years ago our system works well i think we should refer this to the officers if a motion to do so is in order if there is not a motion on the t on the floor already then I would move that this be referred to the current structure for some resolution and a report at some later date. Thank you. Zimbabwe. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, my name is Ishmael Jo. Um, I would propose uh, that um, um, the, the proposal of uh, the WBU president uh, the proposal made by Lebanon and uh, by Canada that um, already we have uh, um, our policymakers that are looking into WBU policies and uh, let's make use of uh, those, the structures that we have formulated ourselves and create new structures. I think that will create 
many problems for, for, for our organization. So I'm, I'm proposing that this matter be referred to the uh, membership policy committee that will be working throughout the four-year term that is coming in. Thank you. And then Philippines. Only yeah. one more intervention I will accept now. Yeah, I think it is uh, very basic that we need to go back to uh, the bylaws so that we will know there that if this um, issue can be resolved at the level of the board. Uh, all I know is uh, we need to get the consensus or affirmation of the General Assembly if it requires amendments of the bylaws. Since this is an internal policy, I go with the uh, I support the motion of the gentleman from Canada to refer the matter to appropriate committee for appropriate action. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. India, last. This is the last intervention. Uh, definitely last the best. I feel, uh, <laughs> sir, I'm here to add some ice to your seat. So Please do. Please cool do. <laughs> Thank you very much. After all, you are my fellow countrymen. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I would uh, suggest that uh, I think since uh, you have suggested that this should be referred to the officers and we'll be forming a small group, I would request you that uh, the person who has moved this uh, resolution of the country also should be taken into that group so that uh, the things work out well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now I know I am now entering into a very difficult terrain of voting. Clearly there is a division and sharp division. So let me try out if I can, through wise vote, I can have any sense of the house. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm coming to that. Uh, first of all, I will ask Japan before putting it to vote. There is one amendment which has been suggested clearly that instead of having a working group, can it, could it be referred to the executive or officers? Japan, are you agreeable to this amendment? Otherwise, I will have to vote both the things, you know. Mike, please. Mike to Japan. Thank you. We, we agree to your, the suggested amendment. We, you, are, you are going to accept that? Yes. To whom it should be referred? To the executive or officers? Yes. Executive or officers? Make, a, make up your mind. There are two different things. One is officer, that is board, and the other is executive. Board? Uh, sorry, we, we also have some language problems, so can you wait a minute? Yes, please, please. Why not? Hmm? I will, I will. Wait a minute. I will, I will, I will, I will give you a chance. Yes, Germany, you have probably a point of order. Uh, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. 
Uh, yes, ma'am. Like, uh, we would like the provost for to the, to be amended to the executives. To the executive. Thank you. Germany, do you have a point of order? No, that's all. That's all. I, I just wanted to remind us that we have a, a formal motion by Charles Massop um, saying that the resolution should be moved, uh, should be referred to the executive committee. So this this refers to what has just said before. So that's yes, that's okay. why I. I that's asked. okay. That's okay. Thank you, sir. So now, the resolution as proposed and after amendment is like this. That, uh, can you, uh, Dr. Mark, can you read the resolution again? You'd like to hear the resolution again? Yes. Instead of working group, you say to the executive. Instead of working group, replace working group with the executive. Now, do you want the whole thing or just the resolved? No, just resolved. Just resolved. Not the background note. Resolution, the Ninth World Blind Union General Assembly resolves that a working group should be set up comprising... Now it will read? And it would be the executive. Executive, yes? should. Yeah. The executive. Should. Uh-huh. Um, and representatives of regional unions, but that's also the oh, executive. Yes, yes. Uh, to review overall membership fee structure and policies, including the number of delegates and indicators for evaluation, as well as reasonableness of budget and expense alloca expenses allocations, the result of which should be presented at the 10th General Assembly. That is the resolution norm for which we are going to vote. Those who are in favor of the resolution say aye. Those who are against the resolution say no. Eyes have it. Eyes have it. <clears throat> Third resolution, please. Resolution 3, ensuring a balanced representation in the UNCRPD Monitoring Committee. The adoption of the UN Committee on... Or, yes, the adoption of the UN... Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in 2006 opened a possibility greater than ever that conditions and opportunities for persons with disabilities and all around the world could be improved. The UNCRPD Monitoring Committee convenes every six months to evaluate reports of the situation and status for persons with disabilities in countries having ratified the convention. Through this process, National governments are made to testify progress and offer explanations of any shortcomings and gaps. This is a unique opportunity to ensure focus on the conditions facing persons with disabilities in specific countries and to continuously insist on improvements and progress. A broad and representative composition of the committee with respect to geography, gender, and disability is crucial to ensure optimal functioning of the committee. To achieve this diversity, it is important that national organizations of persons with disabilities 
individually and in combination seek to influence nominations of candidates for the committee and lobby to encourage diversity in the nominations. It is noted that presently the gender balance within the committee is unsatisfactorily slanted toward male representatives. The World Blind Union General Assembly gathered in Orlando, Florida, USA from 18th to 24th of August 2016 therefore urges its regions and national members through coordinated efforts to lobby toward diversity and particularly towards ensuring that gender equality is obtained by nominating suitable candidates to the committee of both genders in upcoming elections for the committee in 2018 and 2020 respectively. That is the resolution, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Dr. Mark. Uh, any interventions? I hope after heated, heated uh, discussion on previous resolution, this is a simple one. There should be a consensus. Am I right? No interventions. Those who are in favor say aye. Those who are against say no. Eyes have it. Fourth resolution, please. Resolution 4, seizing the opportunities given in the Sustainable Development Goals 2015-2030. One of the important features from a disability community aspect is that a number of five out of 17 goals and two additional sub-targets carry a reference to persons with disabilities, meaning that our conditions, opportunities, and the impact on lives for us are part of the measurable criteria. With these facts in mind, the SDGs to the effects and where persons with disabilities are mentioned, we are included and have the right and need to be heard and understood. There are seven targets which explicitly mention persons with disabilities and six Additional targets mention vulnerable groups, which according to given definitions include persons with disabilities. To ensure that persons with a visual impairment are included in the progressive development to reach the stated goals, it is important that WBU and its members device mechanisms to establish some baseline data and ways to ensure inclusion and measure the positive impact within the 13 areas directly or indirectly indicated and no, identified and moreover measure impact against the various areas highlighted in the UNCRPD be it resolved by the World Blind Union 9th General Assembly convened in Orlando, Florida, USA from August 17, 24, 2016, resolved that the WBU officers immediately after the assembly establish a working group with the task to devise concrete tools and methods to create baseline data for all relevant areas included by the SDG SDGs. targets in question and Two, that before the end of the quadrennium, the tools have been made operational in collecting data from preferably all 
WBU members and inserted in a simple and useful database for further comparison. Three, that the officers report to the 10th Assembly a summary of the findings within the specific SGD target areas. Four, that the working group initiates a process to devise a short and simple survey intending to every four years measure progress impact of the SDG implementation at national level for persons with a visual impairment based on responses from WBU national members and where appropriate in collaboration with the regional unions. That's the resolution, Mr. Chairman. Again, very cooling, probably no division. Am I right? No interventions? Those who are in favor say aye. aye. Those who are against it say no. Eyes have it, eyes have it. Next. Resolution number five. Regarding youth engagement. Whereas there is a need for blind youth to become engaged in the work of the World Blind Union and whereas this need is served by developing methods for facilitating participation by blind youth within the regional structures of the World Blind Union, now therefore be it resolved by the World Blind Union meeting in its ninth General Assembly in the city of Orlando, Florida, USA, this 22nd day of August 2016, that this organization call upon the officers of each regional union within this organization to implement methods for the engagement of blind youth at the regional and international levels with the objective to assure that such blind youth are trained to be leaders within the union itself and within programs and activities beyond the union. That is the resolution. Any interventions? None? Those who are in favor say aye. aye. Those who are against say no. Eyes have it, eyes have it. Next resolution. This resolution is entitled Vote of Thanks. As reports to this General Assembly have demonstrated, the leadership of the World Blind Union has made great progress toward the priorities agreed at the last. General Assembly Thailand 2012. Much of this through the voluntary contributions of many individuals and organizations. The Ninth General Assembly convened in Orlando, Florida, USA, wished to extend wholehearted warm, uh, wholeheartedly their warm thanks to our American hosts and their partners, the speakers, the guests, the guides, the interpreters, the volunteers, the sponsors, and all those who have contributed to making this successful event possible. The General Assembly also wishes to thank its leadership over the past four years from 2012 to 2016 for the dedication they have shown in their work to acknowledge their achievements and wishes the incoming leadership every success for the next quadrennium.
your claps itself shows it is unanimously approved right those who are in favor say aye i will not call for no mr chairman this concludes the report of the committee uh, mr chair could i ask you one thing are we do we want to put that motion for rejection of those three resolutions oh um the committee has determined that three resolutions were inappropriate to come before the um general assembly it is always the authority of the general assembly to tell the committee that uh it does not agree um i would think it would be useful to have a motion to accept the report of the committee mr chairman uh you move it i'm not a delegate uh, i'm just no the problem. chairman no problem so uh anyone will move the report of the resolution committee be accepted who canada moves who seconds okay so those who are in favor say aye those who are against say no eyes have it and we have 21 minutes left mr chairman yes sir i have some more work to do before that before thanking you and your committee uh there is one more uh, motion which needs to be considered and approved by the assembly and for this i would invite our able returning officer tarj everson to move that motion tarj floor is yours thank you mr rungta yeah as part of my uh, kind of job description if you like as a returning officer it says that on the last day of the assembly i should present a motion to the general assembly requesting a permission to destroy all ballot papers related to the election process and of course i would not like to carry around the ballots for the next 4 <laughs> years and neither would mark and his team so before i move this motion i would also like to thank mark meyer and his team for present to for making the election process going smooth and giving us nicely prepared voting ballots so then i'm i'm putting it to the assembly that uh, you uh, give us uh, approve and uh, the request and for the permission to destroy all ballot papers related to the election process during this assembly i as a delegate uh, not as chair i move that uh, the assembly approves the destruction of the ballot papers which were used for the elections in this general assembly uh, who is that okay hungry second set any opposition those who are in favor say aye those who are against say no eyes have it so permitted to destroy the ballot papers don't you don't have to carry it to norway you can send it to india if you like <laughs> um friends uh, before i hand over for announcements i i would like to thank uh, 
the resolution committee chair and uh, the resolution committee members for bringing very relevant resolutions for our consideration and for a very detailed assessment of the resolutions received and uh, for presenting what was required to be presented in terms of the terms of reference determined by the WBO officers and uh, the executive committee. I would also like to thank all the dear delegates for making my job easier by extending their cooperation and also for their engagement in the adoption, in the process of adoption of the resolutions. Because resolutions are in fact a guide to the incoming leadership and a guide given by the General Assembly which is supreme and sovereign body of WBO. I think this, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, debate, discussion around the resolutions in the process of consideration of each of the resolutions has been very serious, enriching and the point which emerged that every delegate is speaking either for or against of only one resolution which was controversial but everybody was keeping in mind when making interventions the overall interest of World Blind Union and that is that shows our commitment our unity and let's pledge ourselves to continue to act unitedly for a for establishing a society which is just which in which our rights are guaranteed and the right to equality and full participation is ensured. Thank you very much for your cooperation. Now I would request for certain logistic announcements to be made by the host committee. Thank you. This message is only for the WBU-sponsored delegates for whom the WBU office has arranged the hotel shuttle bus service. This is about your return transportation to the airport. At the Orlando airport, you should have already collected your return bus ticket from the shuttle bus company. Please refer to the bus pickup time that the office sent you before your departure. If you do not remember the pickup time, you can check that at the WBU office, which is located in room 247. You will need to be ready and waiting for the bus 10 minutes before the pickup time at the hotel main entrance. Keep in mind the extra time that you will need to check out of the hotel. Your rooms have been paid for. You will need to pay the extra charges that you have made to your room. Paul Tezanu, president of the Francophone Union of the Blind, invites all Francophone delegates and observers to share information this evening, August 22nd, at 6 o'clock p.m. by meeting at the front of this room by the stage. Um, he counts on the participation of everyone for this meeting. The final announcement is that the water here at the hotel is safe to drink. You can drink the tap water here. Um, we also have ice water at the 
sides and back of this room here if you want a cup of water while you're in this room. So again, the tap, wa tap water is safe to drink here. That's all. Thank you. Now the meeting is adjourned for lunch and after lunch you have… you, you have your program… in your programs, whatever… wherever, which session you want to attend, you may. Thank you very much again. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. How is everyone feeling? Day four after lunch. Are we here? No, no one's here. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Charles. I know Charles is here. Good afternoon. This is Mary Ann Diamond, immediate past president of World Blind Union for about another day and a half. So welcome to the session titled Leadership. Before we begin, I've got a brief message here from Maria Solidar, chair of CRPD committee, as we all know. And here's the message from her today. Dear WBU, greetings from Geneva. I send to all of you the best wishes in your meeting. I value very much the work of the WBU and your leadership and special appreciation of women and men members of your different delegations for your permanent effort and conviction for blind people around the work. Best regards from Maria. And as we know, Montian and Anna were here with us over the weekend, but have returned to Geneva to continue the meeting of CRPD committee. And they are discussing this week a very important Article 24 and a general comment. So, fingers crossed, they will find a way to adopt that general comment. So, we have for you this afternoon a presentation from ULAC um, about a leadership program they are conducting in their region. We then have some speakers as individuals who will talk about leadership and then we will open to the floor. We've heard lots about leadership this week. We've, talked, we've listened and um, learned about how to influence policy, how to change public awareness and perceptions of blind people and these are all really important things in thinking of leadership. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking. I'm going to hand over, and given this is a leadership thing, I'm going to allow our speakers to pretty well introduce themselves. So I'll have no bios for you. So to Fernando, to Carlos and Natalia, Natalia please, um, your, the floor is yours, um, and we'll love to listen to the leadership program in Latin America. Muchas gracias, Mariam. Thank you very much, Mariam, and good afternoon, everybody. And my name is Fernando Galarraga. I am from Argentina, and at the presently, I am the first vice president for the Latin American Union for the Blind. And I am here with Natalia Wala, who is our secretary, executive secretary, and by Carlos Ferrari, the technology secretary, and access for information for the ULAC. And the three of us form part of the Technical Scientific uh, Committee for our organization. And uh, we are really very happy to be here sharing this moment with you, all of you, and talking about a topic which um, for ULAC, our region, is, is something very crucial. And uh, that is, it's just the deepening of the leadership uh, knowledge and to be able to promote 
permanently the resurgence of new leadership and to continue to strengthen the organizations, the base organizations and the Latin American Union of the Blind in all of our region. And first of all, I would like to let you know that our organization has been around for 30 years now and it started in November 1985. And uh, in a similar way that of what happened in in '84 with the with the WBU, it started because of a fusion of two entities that were existing that were working jointly in Latin America. And uh, nowadays we have, uh, in 2016, we have almost a hundred member organizations in the 19 Latin American countries that speak Spanish and Portuguese. And we also must uh, remember that, uh, according to the uh, analysis, because we don't have any precise data for this in our region, in our region approximately we have 15 and 20 million people who are blind or who are have limited vision. And um, what we'd like to share with you is an experience of work, uh, which has been uh, started by our technical scientific committee, which is us, which we want, we want to promote leadership and how from ULAC we are understanding this question and how we're promoting its um, its development. And the Technical Scientific uh, Committee is an internal group for or internal work group and is configured starting with two premises which are fundamental. One which would be the technological and the second one would be political. And these two variables are for us crucial and they conjugate in the team of people, the professionals and leaders that integrate this team who have under their belt uh, the um, organization of the biggest events for institutional and also for the, the the Blind Congress that is done every four years. The last one was in Montevideo in April in Uruguay. And uh, also what is um, what is um, the uh, organization of different events uh, that are participatory. And some of the important decisions that allow the development of this committee and the first one is the creation of our technical office for in order to professionalize the work that we do as ULAC. And the next one is the, the realization of the strategic planning as a management technique, which for us has been really important and transcendental in regards to the different goals that we've been able to achieve in the last few years. And the third one is that these tools or this strategic planning tool, and in the, definitely all of our actions are widely participatory and the participation of, of our bases of our leaders of our members that integrate ULAC is this is for us an element that is crucial and that differentiates us in the way that we define our actions and our work and our projects and so now I am going to give the microphone over to my friend my Carlos Ferrari from Brazil who's going to be talking about his experience working with us Good afternoon. It's a pleasure and it's a wonderful joy to be able to be part of this uh, moment uh, and to be able to share this table with uh, my friends from so many years working together and uh, also how much we've been building and using a methodology that really uh, can help us because because uh, they, we've made changes in Latin America and uh, in the way of working the thing about leadership and also the organizations of uh, different blind people in Latin America. 
and I'm going to be talking in Portuñol because uh, we don't have the interpreting for Portuguese, so I'm going to be a little bit easier. I hope that I can understand better. Our methodology was built with a challenge asking our organizations, even asking ourselves, what are we and what do organizations do helping blind in Latin America? This is a question that we asked ourselves, which allowed us to build some methodological basis so that we could do our work in the last three years. The first methodological methodical hypothesis is to have a structured, hypo, a structured diagnosis. This research happened with a tool with a tool which allowed us for example to know if the organizations were working in uh, rehabilitation health wise how the ADMs were working if they were preparing for the new changes in other words and how uh, sustainability things were happening to see if we were preparing people for being leaders. It was a quite complex tool which was applied and later Natalia is going to say in which countries this took place. Another methodological basis in which we operated was, was a debate structured from proposals. So not only were we trying to create a diagnosis as also to stimulate organizations and their leaders so that they could prepare proposals. Proposals which are validated on after after many conversations and and also finding a consensus. We have as our, as our foundation, as two foundations really, or premises to continue with our work. The idea that our activities are not fixed. Our meetings have, there is a, there is a lot of uh, deep diagnosis which allows us to get to the countries and to establish a conversation to find out what is the reality of that geography. We also have as a premise the idea of uh, training. We are not just making a proposal, but also we want to take knowledge to the countries and come out of the country with knowledge, with new information, and also with structured proposals. And finally, Everything that we have done is done in a spirit of collaboration, working collectively, and also engaging all of the leaderships in the areas. But the time is very limited, and we have many challenges ahead of us. And I am going to ask Natalia now that she could please tell you what are the challenges and the difficulties that we are going to be facing and that we hope to overcome in the next few years. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Good afternoon. Thanks to all of those who are present for giving us the opportunity of sharing this, this work experience 
with the different regions which make up the area for the blind. As Fernando and Carlos were saying, this proposal, this work proposal, this this process, which began in the year 2010, has been developed in several countries of the region. One of the first challenges that we face with the implementation of this methodological proposal was that different from the World Union in the Latin American Union for Blind organizations. The member organizations are several per country. So we find the first uh, the first thread is to find the articulated work of all of the different organizations in each country so that together we can develop this methodology which Carlos just explained to you. We were proposing and we still propose, this is an ongoing activity we propose to them to, we propose to the member organizations that they work in their national territory in an articulate manner on one way in order that they can manage resources both with the state as with the private sector and other organizations of the civil entity that they can also carry forth these activities these training uh, these training activities which are national trainings we also propose a the the these activities should have activities that are the most inclusive possible, so including women, young people, elderly, uh, indigenous people who have uh, handicaps, people who are blind or with limited vision who live in the interior of the country, in the rural areas, and in the most remote places, and also in the bigger cities. And we also propose, and we ask the organizations that participate in this process, that they make a commitment that the activity is not just an end in itself, but part of a process, and that it is fundamentally the beginning of a building work, a construction work, which allows us to make a plan of action. Actions which are going to thrust us forward in an organized manner at short, medium, and long term. How do we work in each of these countries? We work with the theme that the member organizations must identify with as priorities after the convention and the UN for people with uh, handicaps. We do it in subgroups. We have debates. We identify th uh, dif difficulties, resources, and we also prepare proposals. These documents that we work as a group are then shared in a plenary sessions so that we can validate each one of these uh, of these aspects that are being identified and then definitely we can build a national agenda which is constituted in a work plan for that country for helping people with visual handicaps and limitations on Wednesday we're, Wednesday morning we're going to be sharing another space where we're going to be telling you giving you an update as to what has happened in all of these countries but as an example we have had the opportunity of all sitting together at a work table, we have labels, we have leaders which perhaps did not have communication in the longest time in many years, and this made the communication with people in handic with handicaps very difficult in those countries. What do we have? We work in nine of the 19 countries. We work in Uruguay, in Brazil, Bolivia, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, Venezuela, Costa Rica. We still have to work with the rest of the countries in the region, 
But aside from that, and most importantly, be able to work with a monitoring system where we can see the work that is being proposed. So this, it doesn't just stay at the level of proposal. Also being able to guarantee and find the tools that will give us the resources that allow us to do these, uh, these works. And above all, to be able to of this information in a systematic way so that we could share, like we're doing today, the results and the experiences that could be emulated in other countries, but that can also be done in other national organizations and in other regions like in ULAV, make the World Union for Blind. Why? So that the movement of handicapped people is, is going to be every time stronger so there is there is more consolidation on so that we can attain the representation and the participation that we want in, in the international and local arena so that we can modify and change the reality of people who are blind and low vision who are not here today who probably don't even know about us but who need our help so that they can truly have the rights enforced our human rights enforced thank you very much Um, good to hear another program in Latin America addressing many countries and organisations to build their capacity to undertake their work and form leadership of individuals and organisations. We're now going to hear from some individuals who in themselves are well-experienced uh, leaders, as many of you are sitting in this room. And I'm going to invite the first speaker is Karen Kennedy from the Director, National Library Services for the Blind here in the United States. Karen, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne, and welcome, all of you. I know that we have a lot of seasoned leaders in this group, so I hope I don't bore you. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about my own leadership journey, and perhaps some of it will resonate with, with you seasoned leaders, and for some of you who are working on that, maybe you'll get a, a kernel or two of something useful. It, my journey began many years ago, and it was a small thing, really. My little daughter became, it came home from catechism class with a picture of a chicken. I said, what did you learn? Why did you draw a chicken? She had no idea. I wanted to complain. She isn't learning anything. And then I realized I had no idea what they were really doing. <laughs> I figured out that if I wanted to have input into the program, I'd better plan to do the work. So I signed up to teach. It was really a lot of work. I had to get lesson plans in Braille and had to plan the lessons and then I had to manage a room full of rowdy nine-year-olds. But by doing that, I had influence over the program. They really weren't doing such a bad job after all. <clears throat> but the lesson that I learned was that if I wanted to influence the outcome of the program, I had to jump in and work at it, study it, get to know it, understand it, understand the potentials, the constraints, find solutions to problems. I needed to develop opinions based on facts and the situation that was there. I learned that I could use the unique knowledge that I had as a blind person, as a woman, as a mother, as a teacher, and the unique combination of my own gifts to influence the outcomes. To do the work effectively, 
I had to hone my blindness skills. Now, I have been blind since I was a small child, and I'm a lifelong Braille reader. And my experience has taught me that personal literacy is paramount to my success as a blind leader. When I'm writing, for instance, it's not good enough to be almost right. I don't want people saying, oh, that's pretty good for a blind person. I want people to say, that's pretty good. Literacy is not a luxury for me. Listening only is not enough for me either. I use Braille just the way sighted people use print. I take notes in Braille on my note taker, on my Perkins Brailler, on my slate and stylus. I read them back in Braille. I search them on my note Uh, on my note taker, I flag them, I edit them. I use a combination of everything I can get my hands on to compensate for my inability to read print. I use a computer with speech, I use recorded books, I use recorded magazines, but I also use Braille and strongly believe that without the literacy that Braille provides for me, I would be less able to do my job. I need to write notes and read them back. I need to write and edit documents, including the spelling, the punctuation, the paragraphing, as well as all the content. And I need to read and manipulate numbers on spreadsheets for budgets. I need them in Braille. So on my desk, you would find a Perkins Brailler, a slate and stylus, a note taker, a computer with a Braille display. I am very fortunate to have all these devices. But the second part of that is the learning and practicing using them day in and day out so that I can be efficient to do my work. It's a lot more work to learn to use a screen reader, for example, and be efficient with it than it is to learn to point and click a mouse. But it's critical these days to getting the job done. Mobility was another thing that I had to take seriously. I've used a dog guide since I was 16, and for years that was sufficient. But I discovered, I'm a little slow, that some things are better done with a dog, but some things are better done with a cane, and some things are better done with a sighted guide. It depends on the situation. My preference is to be independent. My choice is to have both the dog and the cane at my disposal so that I can have the most efficient mode for the moment. Aside from the practicalities of good independent travel, I believe that it helps in maintaining my image as a competent and professional colleague. So jumping in and learning and contributing at some level was where I started honing my skills along the way. And that got me into a job at a rehabilitation agency. And then came another big lesson. I was given the task of drafting a new strategic plan for the agency. Well, I knew what I was doing. I knew the program. I drafted a beautiful, logical, may I say perfect, strategic plan. And I delivered it complete and proud and they rejected it out of hand. Why? Because I did not get buy-in from the stakeholders at the beginning and throughout the process. Yeah, it was pretty humiliating to have my work rejected so completely, and I had to start over. 
But this time, on the advice of my boss, I gathered input from everyone first. I learned that leadership doesn't happen in a vacuum. I couldn't lead unless I could convince others to follow. And to do that, I learned that I had to spend the time and the patience, and it took patience, to listen, to gather input, and to incorporate that input into the project. And surprise, surprise, I discovered that they had a lot of ideas I hadn't thought of. When people feel like their concerns were addressed, they were much more willing to follow my lead on the project. And the second draft was accepted. It contained other people's ideas besides my own, but because I drafted it, I was able to define the foundation of the plan, and my foundation remained through subsequent iterations. Leadership involves risks. Sometimes projects fail, and when they do, leaders take the responsibility. I spearheaded a big project several years ago to develop a new case management system in our agency. The project failed abysmally. I could give you a long list of reasons why it failed and a long list of lessons learned, but the point is it failed, and I had the lead responsibility. The only thing I could do was to pick up the pieces and move forward, taking what I had learned and implementing them into the next project. I've worked hard, taken chances, and perhaps most importantly, I've learned from my mistakes. And today, I am in a leadership position at the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. I'm at the national level of a program affecting the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. Leadership presumes that you know where you're going, and people will follow you if the goal makes sense. I have a vision for my program. I have articulated that vision clearly, I think, and consistently for the past four years. Part of that vision includes converting our Braille program from hard copy to electronic, providing refreshable Braille devices and electronic Braille books and magazines, and hard copy only on demand. This is a big change for my program, but it is my vision based on my knowledge and experience. Four years ago when I came to the National Library Service and articulated that vision for the first time, it was a long way off. I knew it would not be possible to achieve unless several things happened and that I had a role in making those things happen. I needed a change to our governing laws. To get that to happen, I needed to, to the support of the Library of Congress upper management to include it in their legislative requests. To get that to happen, I had to sell the value of Braille literacy to a completely uninformed audience. I took every chance that I could to do that and succeeded. Meanwhile, we had to establish the need from the perspective of the stakeholders. So we worked with Perkins to organize a Braille summit to solicit feedback and ideas on all aspects of Braille. The top recommendation coming out of that summit, as I sort of hoped it would be, was making refreshable Braille devices available to everyone. I also needed to enlist the support of 
the um, consumer organizations because Congress needed to know that this was an important to, thing to all blind people. Another thing I needed, that needed to happen was a new technology. We couldn't even consider the possibility of providing um, refreshable braille displays at the current prices. I made my vision known as widely as possible, and perhaps that helped to leverage the resources needed to develop a new technology. That technology is soon to be on the market from, um, as a result of the Transforming Braille Group, which is an international effort led by Kevin Carey. It's going to be on the market at affordable prices. Our legislation has changed as of this summer, and now we have the challenge of implementing the program. The vision is clear, and we're closer to reality now. Getting the support of the stakeholders has been critical, and beating the drum with a clear goal helps people to get behind it. Perhaps the hardest lesson I've learned is that I can't do it alone. I have learned that lesson many times over the years, <laughs> and I keep relearning it. To bring this Braille project along, I needed a whole constellation of supporters. I needed the National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind and the Library of Congress and the International Tra Transforming Braille Group and the educators and the Braille readers and the Braille technology experts and everyone else interested in literacy for blind people around the world. I can't do it alone, but I can do my part to make it happen. Leading takes practice and hard work like everything else that's worthwhile. The rewards are there, but so are the risks and the responsibilities. I have found as a blind person that a full array of alternative techniques is critical to my success because no one thing or one way is the best way all the time. And I have learned to take into account the opinions of others and to value and promote the skills of others to get what I want done. But I think the most important thing that I have learned is that my dreams, my goals, and my aspirations are as important as anyone else. They are valid and they are achievable. Your dreams, your visions for a better future are just as valid as anyone else's too. If we each do our part, and we all work together, we can make them all come true. I will end with one of my favorite quotes from Margaret Mead, an anthropologist of some repute. She said, and I echo, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world, for indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, and congratulations on a vision thought and about to be achieved. If you've been following the program, you will note that I've got the order of speakers out of order. And I have to say, how could I really forget my lifelong friend and colleague, Professor Ron McCallum? So, Ron, I apologise if I have confused you, but Professor... Uh, Emeritus Professor Ron McCallum from Sydney University, from Vision Australia has a lifetime of leadership. And what, Ron, welcome to the podium. Thank you. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, I know Charles is here. 
So hello, Charles. Hello, everyone. Hello to those listening on ACB radio. And I'll let you into a secret. Some of the delegates are listening to this on their iPhones as they sit by the pool through the ACB. Can I say, guys, stop splashing and concentrate. I'm a little diffident about speaking about myself, but I have to say a few introductory words. Then I'll say something about leadership in two forms, being dean of a law school and chairing a United Nations committee, both taking different skills. And then I want to conclude by asking, why are there not more blind people as leaders and why not more blind women? I was born a long time ago. I think I'm perhaps the third oldest person here, uh, perhaps not as old as Lord Lowe or Euclid, but getting there. I was born in 1948 in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm a retrolental fibroplasia child. That is, too much oxygen destroyed my vision. I went to blind schools and to an ordinary high school, and then I studied law both in Australia and in Canada as a postgraduate student, where I got great help from the CNIB. I have a great soft spot for the CNIB. It was the first time I'd come across a truly national blind organisation. I ended up being an academic in Australia. My specialty was, and still is, labour relations law. In 1993, I found to my great surprise that I happened to be the first totally blind person at any Australian or New Zealand university to be appointed to a full professorship in law. Oh, no, don't, please. <laughs> from, from 2002 until 2007, I was dean of the University of Sydney Law School, one of the two oldest law schools in the country, more than 150 years old. Then in 2009, I became an inaugural member of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which monitors the CRPD, and my friends are still there. I finished my mandate in December 2014. I chaired the committee from February 2010 to April 2013, when my successor, um, who we've just heard from, Maria Soledad Cisternas, took over. I also had the honour, between 2011 and 2012, of chairing all of the meetings of the nine chairs of the nine Human Rights Committee meetings committees of the entire United Nations. And that was perhaps the highest and most complex thing I've ever done at a time of treaty body reform. Being a dean of a law school is rather different from being a chair of a UN committee and therefore I want to look at them separately and look at some of the techniques I used. I first thing, if you're going to be dean of an academic institution or of any institution for that matter, you need to be able to do the jobs that you're asking people to do. No point being a leader and saying, well, I can't do this, I can't do that. You can't do everything. But I had been a relatively successful labour relations lawyer. I'd also practised law as a special counsel in the law firm of Ashurst, which goes around the world now. And so I was able to do the jobs of teaching, researching and practice that I wanted my staff to do when teaching young women and men to be lawyers. Second important thing is 
I know it's a phrase often used, deep listening. Every leader needs to be able to listen to every person on their staff. How do I work out what people are made of if I can't see their faces? Well, I think we blind people are pretty good at that. I follow one of my great heroes is Jacques, Jacques Lucerion, who died in 1971. He was a blind leader in the French resistance who vetted people by using the techniques I have tried to learn, by their voices, by their breathing, what they say and what they don't say. And I found it very easy to get a rapport with people. My labour relations training taught me the value of conciliation and putting myself in the shoes of the other person. The second great assistance was technology. Email made my life so much easier. If I had been dean of a law school in the 1980s when there was no email, I would have been confronted by bombastic handwritten notes from my staff. I would have had to find someone to read them. But now, for good or for ill, they emailed and I could read them instantly. I had so many folders, I could find the latest email from any of the hundred staff within less than a minute. I learned when it was important to email and when it was important not to. I had one staff member who was concerned about an issue of leave. So I said, you know, instead of having email trench warfare, perhaps we could meet. Well, wrong, he said. I like to copy people in so they'll know how unreasonable you are. I said, well, why don't we meet? And after the meeting, you can write to your friends, copy me in, and confirm my unreasonableness. We settled it talking within 60 seconds. All organisations these days, for good or for real, I think some ways for ill, run on finances. And the law school is no different. My budget was quite small. I think it was only about 17 million as part of a university budget. I worked very hard with Excel spreadsheets in learning the finances. Sometimes I would bring in the head of finance with a, with a what do you call it, a text tape recorder? Not a tape recorder, you know what I mean, a text recorder? And I would go through some of the key financial systems. I had arguments with the University Central people about making finance websites accessible. One of the problems I still find when I talk to people about making websites accessible, they say, oh, yes, 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 yes. I have no idea what it means. Have you ever struck that? Yeah. But I kept the law school in the black for five of my five years and got commendations from the president of the university. Not an easy thing to do. But I think it took up more of my time. But it taught me the value of financial literacy and I think... So many of we blind going to leadership positions ought to think about learning financial literacy. I had my ups and downs. My wife, who's here today, Professor Mary Crock, who has vision, she and I had been married then for 20 years and she was a member of the staff. On occasions in, in academic trench warfare, some of my colleagues would sort of tip a bucket over her knowing I couldn't get at them for that. And that made life a bit complicated. Um, but nevertheless, we both stood firm and got through it. 
Um, it was a great advantage having Mary in the building, even though I think my time as five years of deanship made her, quote, the invisible person, unquote. Now I'm a professor emeritus, which means a has-been, I'm not about, and Mary is the only full-time professor in the family, as she'll tell you. Uh, it was a relatively successful time. I began building the new law building, which now stands wonderfully, finished by my successor. Um, I achieved the only law school exchange, staff and students with the Harvard Law School of any Australian university law school. We won three Rhodes Scholarships, which has never been done before or since, and we won the World Championship of Mooting in 2007 in the Jessup Moot. I was very honoured to play that role. Chairing a United Nations committee takes different skills. There are, on the committee, 18 persons from all around the world who are all elected I couldn't fire them. <laughs> and they had just as much right as I had. We were equals. I never applied to be chair. For that matter, I never applied to be dean. The president asked me. I wasn't that interested at the time. I never applied to be chair. And at the second meeting, where there was discussion and no one could agree, a group of the, my colleagues came to me and said, look, we think you're the only person we could agree upon. Why? I've never been employed by a disability agency. I've always worked in the public and in the private sectors. I'm not in the disability industry per se. I was not seeking to enhance my career by being chair. It wasn't going to affect my career one way or the other. What I brought was, being a lawyer, I saw my job as getting the business done and following the rules. And that's what I, I did for three years. Because we're all equals, and I have no more power than anyone else, you really needed to be deep listening and to recognise that people have different backgrounds and different thoughts. The notion of conflict of interests, which is taken very strictly by Anglo-Saxons, has a totally different meaning in Africa, in Latin America and in the Middle East. I don't know that my view of, 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 of conflict of interest is any better or any worse than the other views. But my job was to coalesce them together. When chairing the nine human rights treaty body chair meetings, that was the first time some of these senior people had run into a senior disabled person. And that was quite extraordinary because we were doing, if you like, um, reform of the treaty body system. Well, why aren't there more blind leaders. Well, I think the first point to note is that our level of employment is not high, certainly in Australia and Canada, the two countries I'm familiar with. We need to increase educational levels and we need to increase employment and we need to increase the confidence of we blind people and we need to have more role models out there to show how it can be done. My role models were Rupert Cross, a blind person who taught law at Oxford in the 50s and 60s. I'm a bit diffident in saying this, but after teaching labour law for 44 years, there are now three blind persons at three different universities who are university lecturers in labour law. I wish they'd go to property law or criminal law. It's my field. 
But nevertheless, it shows the value of role, role makers. And finally, I think we need to establish courses to help blind people with leadership, to help them with deep listening and to train them with financial literacy. I'm often told, well, well blind people aren't financially literate. And I say, oh, you've got to just train them. It's been a great honour for me to speak here today, particularly next to my close friend, Marianne Diamond, who I went to school with, although I was much older. Can I say that as a teenager, she was just as feisty as she is today? Bless you all. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. And lucky you didn't have the microphone to share any other secrets about myself. Um, you will see in the program that um, our last speaker is Brian Bashan from... Uh, Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco. Unfortunately, Brian is unable to be with us. So at no notice, I've invited someone else to take his place. And that's our incoming president, Fred Schroeder. And Fred has also a lifetime of leadership in very different roles. And I'm sure much to share with us. And thank you, Frank, Fred, for taking up this spot so um, willingly or unwillingly. <laughs> All right, thank you. Good afternoon. <clears throat> It is a real pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. Many of the remarks that you have heard resonate with my own story. I want to begin by saying that when we look at the challenges facing blind people, it is very easy to catalog the challenges in terms of the mechanics. In other words, difficulty getting access to a good education, difficulty in getting uh, access to employment, even at very entry levels. But those lack of opportunities in many respects are symptomatic of the greater problem that we face, and that is low expectations. Society views us as broken people. They don't harbor ill will toward us, but they see us as very damaged, as broken people, people who are very limited in the ability to carry out even the most basic day-to-day -day activities. And so with that as the underlying assumption, opportunities are limited. I lost most of my vision when I was seven years old, and I went through public school in the United States without any special education support, but more tragically, no blind role models. And all I remember about my childhood as a blind person was being told what I could not do. Since I didn't see well enough to read print, I was excused from all reading, writing, and math in the curriculum. Now, if you think about your education, if you take reading, writing, and math out of the education, there is precious little left. So I had a terrible education, a very incomplete education. However, one thing I did learn, and that is I learned to feel inferior. When I was in 10th grade, 
I had to take a biology class. And part of that biology class involved a lab experiment dissecting a frog. The way the exercise was structured is that the class was divided into groups of two. And the dissection was divided up into two parts. And so when the dissection would begin, one student would do the first half of the dissection while the other student recorded what was being discovered. And midway through, they would switch roles. So both students got the opportunity to participate in the dissection. Well, in my class, we were divided into groups of two, except there was one group that had three people in it. That was my group. And that meant I sat behind the other two students while they did the experiment. So I did not learn anything about dissecting a frog. Now, you might think, so what? How important is it to dissect a frog? But what I did learn is a feeling of inferiority. I assumed that I could not do what others were able to do, and that I could not do it because of blindness. I lost all of my vision when I was 16, and I was very fortunate. I went to an adult rehabilitation center in California, and there I learned the techniques that I would need to be able to function as a blind person. And Karen Kenninger spoke about these skills, the blindness skills, the ability to read and write Braille, the ability to travel independently using a white cane, the ability to cook and to clean your house and take care of your day-to-day -day needs. But the most fortunate part was I met other blind people. As many of you know, for all of my adult life, I have been actively involved in a consumer organization in the United States, the host organization for this General Assembly, the National Federation of the Blind. And it was through the Federation that I began to recognize that the limitations that I thought were because of blindness were socially constructed limitations. In other words, they were limitations that came from low expectations. And I had internalized those low expectations. A friend of mine, well, the day I met him, uh, he was involved in some legislative work. And he wanted me to contact him the next week. So he said, let me give you my telephone number. I want you to call me next week. And I said, I have no way of writing down your telephone number. And he said, don't you know how to read Braille? And I had learned Braille. I said, yes. He said, do you know how to use a slate and stylus? I said, yes, but I don't have one with me. He said, if you're sighted, you don't need to carry a pen because there are sighted people everywhere, and somebody will have a pen. But if you're blind, you have to carry a slate and stylus, because if you don't, 
the odds that all the sighted people around you will have slates and styluses is pretty low. So, by the way, to this day, I carry a slate and stylus in my bag. What was he doing? What he was doing in a gentle way was saying, quit acting helpless. Quit assuming that you cannot do things because of blindness. That support system was absolutely critical in shaping my career goals. I wanted to be a teacher of blind children. And so I went through my university training and did well. And I began to see that what was limiting so many of us was the consequence of stereotypes or misunderstanding about blindness, more so than the functional aspect of blindness. I graduated with my master's degree in 1978. Some of you weren't born in 1978. Uh, At that time in the U.S., blind children were being educated in integrated schools. Not all blind children, but the move was very strong toward integrated education. And many of the school systems were looking for teachers who could teach the academic subjects, but who also could teach orientation and mobility. In other words, a school system might only have three or four blind children, and they didn't want to hire a teacher to teach academics and then hire an orientation and mobility specialist. And so many of the students in my graduate program were getting certified to teach orientation and mobility along with their regular teacher certification. Well, I wanted a job, and I thought that would prepare me best for a job. But at that time in the United States, the university training programs did not accept blind people to learn to be orientation and mobility instructors. Well, it's a very long story, but the key part that I want to bring up this afternoon is that what allowed me or gave me the confidence, the resolve to continue on and to earn my degree in orientation and mobility when, by and large, the the profession was very much against me. It was the faith that other blind people had in me. Blind people believed in me. Blind people encouraged me. They told me that what I was doing was reasonable, that we needed to expand the kinds of jobs that blind people could do. That sustained me. I was young. I was 21 years old. I had an entire profession thinking that I was some sort of troublemaker, that I was being unrealistic, that I would be putting my students in danger. I don't say this to criticize or condemn any of the people who opposed my training, but what allowed me to sustain was the support of other blind people. As we look at leadership, we need to find opportunities to help sustain other blind people, to help encourage 
other blind people. Sometimes it's through money, but it's not all about resources. It's about encouragement and belief. I went on into special education. I faced discrimination, as do most blind people, in trying to find employment. The time I applied for teaching jobs, there was a huge nationwide shortage of qualified teachers of blind children. School districts would come to the university and try to recruit people before they had graduated so that they would have contracts and be committed to going to work at that particular school system upon graduation. Every single student, they were all cited, every student in my program had multiple job offers. I had no job offers. I applied for over 30 30 teaching jobs and received not a single job offer. Not because I wasn't qualified, but simply because of low expectations. My career began with a blind person who ran an agency for the blind, a long-term leader in our National Federation of the Blind, and he hired me. Well, subsequent to that, I've had other jobs. But when I moved to Washington in 1994, I moved to Washington to work for President Bill Clinton. And my job was to head up an agency called the Rehabilitation Services Administration, the agency that provides the bulk of the funding for employment training for adults with disabilities, not just blind people, but adults with disabilities throughout the country. While I was there, we were in the process of trying to recruit someone for a job. And there was a blind woman who came to my attention. She had a law degree, had done very well in law school. But like so many other blind people, when she finished law school, she could not find a job. At the time that I was recruiting for this position, she had been out of work, oh, at least six or eight years, maybe ten years since graduating from law school. So was she the most qualified candidate? No. There were other candidates applying who had very long resumes, lots of work experience, work experience directly related to the function of the job. But I hired her anyway. Now, did I do that because I felt sorry for her? No. She had the skill. She had shown that she could compete and could do the kind of work that I needed to have her do. It was analytical work. She had a law degree with very good grades. Part of expanding leadership is helping others, other blind people, take that step into employment. After I left the government, this young woman has been promoted twice the federal government has a system 
that goes from what they call GS1 to GS15, with 15 being the highest. She is now at the GS15 level and one of the most respected, competent people in that agency. She had the ability, but she did not have the opportunity. We have to help one another gain access to jobs that will develop their leadership potential. So in closing, I would say again, if blind people are going to go into leadership positions, you have to be prepared. You need those good blindness skills that Karen spoke about. You need to have the right kind of preparation, training in whatever skill area or if it's academic qualifications. You need to have those credentials. But also you need to have in your own mind, heart, and spirit the belief that you are just as worthy and just as capable as anyone else. And what sustains that, what nourishes that, is the support of other blind people. This is something each of us in this room can do, whether we have resources or no resources. We can find and encourage blind people, help support them to unlock not only their own potential, but by so doing, to expand opportunities for blind people everywhere. That is a quick summary of my story, and of course there are so many pieces that are left out, but, and I don't really mean to end on a, on a negative note, but I will tell you this. When I was working for President Clinton, this was a position appointed by the President, and it required confirmation by the Senate of the United States. And I was on an airplane one time, and I was talking to a stranger in the seat next to me, and he asked me, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I run a federal agency. And he was absolutely astounded. And he said, but what does the agency do? And I said, well, we provide funds for job training for people with disabilities. And he said, oh, oh, I understand. Well, he didn't say it, but what I'm sure went through his mind is, oh, not, real, not a real job, a disabled job. Oh, I see how a blind person could do that. Yes, we get marginalized. And I don't say that with bitterness or with anger, but I, I think it is a reality. And it is a big part of our challenge around the world to help nurture the ability in blind people, sustain their confidence and encourage them, and to the degree that we control hiring opportunities to actively look for blind people, not as tokens, not just putting some unqualified person in just to have, just to have filled the slot with a blind person, but looking for people who may not have the long resume because of the discrimination they have faced, but they have the skills and they have the drive, and they have the ability. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for a, another inspiring um, life story and journey of, of leadership.
So we've heard from um, ULAC about a leadership program and we've heard three individual stories. And I'm sure, like all of you, many, much of what we've heard resonates. It certainly does with me. This is the time now where we're going to open the floor. And what I'm asking here is that we think about questions. If you have a question for any of the speakers, that you identify the speaker with your question and put the question quite briefly, that you might also like to think about a leadership program or initiative in your organisation that you think would be useful to um, others from around the world to hear. Or thirdly, you might think about things that WBU might think about and consider in our ongoing work that will assist the development of future leaders within our own organisation and more generally. So with those three um, topics that I'm inviting comment on, um, you, if you wish to speak, if you raise your hand or country sign, a microphone will come. If you could say your name and briefly, like 90 seconds, um, make your comment or question. Have we got anyone wishing to speak? The Philippines. Philippines. Yeah, good afternoon, Madam Marian, and to the speakers. Just this Teddy Cahill from the Philippines, Philippine Line Union. I just would like to ask if, uh, since we're talking here of employment, if there is such a law that protects the rights of employment in the United States of America. Thank you. If, uh, if I heard the question correctly, it was, do we have laws to protect the, the rights of blind people in the United States? We have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is very broad civil rights legislation in the United States. And it is helpful, and I certainly would in no, in no way uh, downplay its importance, but you cannot legislate away discrimination. And so that aspect of needing to do public education and that aspect of needing to encourage people to develop their own potential, those, those are not solved by legislation. But yes, we do have very good discrimination intended to protect the civil rights, including in employment, the civil rights of people with disabilities in the US. Thanks, Fred. We'll move to Malawi now. Uh, thank, you, thank you very much. This is Mapupa Shawa from Malawi. Um, it's just a comment. Uh, the comment is, uh, I am sure that um, these presentations of our friends have come at the very right time after having looked at uh, all the presentations in the past. It looks like uh, these presentations, the, 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 the testimonies of our friends are wrapping up everything that we have learned here. Because uh, um, in one of the presentations, it was like, uh, when we want to influence change in the society, it begins with you. And if these people had not taken the lead in the changes, they they themselves had wanted such things would not happen. It's an encouragement to, to us all. And uh, really, as I'm speaking this time, in my, in my country, I am a senior person. I am also heading a school with, which has cited teachers and cited 
learners at a secondary school level. So I am encouraged. I am totally encouraged. Thank you very much. I don't, I, I don't want the line to die naturally, but I can kill it. So let me, speak, let me finish before the 90 seconds. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, and we appreciate your consideration. Um, Australia is next. Hello, it's Emma Benison here. I'm the president of Blind Citizens Australia, but my day job is as the CEO of an organisation called Arts Access Australia, which is the National Arts and Disability Organisation. And we have a very strong emphasis on disability leadership in the arts. And one of the things that we have done is to establish an international Skype and email-based um, leadership network specifically for artists and arts and cultural leaders with disabilities. So I'm just wondering whether something similar might work well for us in the WBU. And um, if that's something that people are interested in, I'd be happy to share some of the learnings from that process. Thank you, Emma. Uh, and certainly sharing resources is a great way to build capacity. And for those of you who are not aware, one of the projects we've undertaken in World Blind Union over the last number of years is the development of a global resource on employment. And when we started that work, we did take the position of talking about employment in, in the way of what works. We'd all talked about barriers of employment and why we can't get jobs. And so we really tried to turn it around and talk about what works. And that is where we have our project Spiro website, that there is resources there for persons who are blind, for families, for employers, for service providers. And the resources are gathered from around the world. So I encourage people to look at it. But Emma, I think... Um, you are correct, and I think there has been some conversation a couple of days ago about maybe World Blind Union looking at establishing a global resource on executive leadership so we can all share our own experiences um, for others and then people can do, um, adjust, amend, refine them to suit the culture and environment in which they live. So I think we'll take that on board. And your assistance would be welcome. Do we have anyone else? Denmark, Denmark please. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Diana Steentoft. I'm a Danish uh, delegate. Now, I have a, a comment and a question for the uh, presenters. Um, my question relates to the kind of skills that are less tangible, meaning um, how, what do you think you have experienced or how have you been helped forward uh, which enabled you to cope with all the prejudices that are visibly there and that you comment on. So how, how is it that we can support people in, in being able to tackle uh, these prejudices into uh, becoming a leader or into, you know, how, how can we move that forward? And my comment is also, it's all very well and good and really needed to share experiences but I think it's also very important that organizations actually find ways of um, uh, creating systems where younger leaders or people aspiring to become leaders can talk face-to-face -face with the role models um, yes. to gain from those experiences. It's, it's not enough just to be able to read about it. We have to meet and, and discuss. 
Very good point, and I do know that some countries do have peer programs where role models and young people come together for exactly that reason. Um, panel members, who would like to uh, respond to the question? Okay. Ron, will you would start? Hello. What do I do? Yes, I think you just talk. Okay. Thank you. That's a very interesting question. I think there are a lot of intangible skills that we blind and disabled people have to work upon. We are watched continuously. I was watched continuously by my students, by staff. Even as a young academic at the age of 25, I couldn't dress as casually as did some of my colleagues because I knew it would be thought, well, he's not really up to it. So we really need to work on our dress and our grooming because we're watched much more than our other groups. And I lived on my own for about 14 years in a house and I had to learn to do everything and that really helped me and gave me skills. I think we, we learn to meet prejudice by being ourselves. I tried for years to do superhuman things thinking that that will make people no longer prejudiced. But of course it never did. Um, you can try your heart out and do 10,000 things. It's like being superwoman, super blind person. That doesn't get you anywhere. We focus upon our jobs. We are very careful in what we do, how we deport ourselves, how we speak, how we operate. And I think that's the best way to go forward. Thank you. Any other panel members would like to comment on that question? Um, I will comment. This is Karen Kenninger. I think that, like everyone else, whether you are sighted or blind or anything else, it's those role models in your life. It's your family. It's the people that you surround yourself with that help you to learn this, the skills and also the confidence. And Fred mentioned this earlier, but I think the, the intangible thing that is the most valuable is the confidence, the confidence to know that you can do anything that you want to do if you're willing to work hard enough to do it. There are programs in the United States where, and there was one in Iowa where I worked before I came to Washington, where we bring people in for nine months of training, and the, the primary focus of that, they learn alternative skills. They learn Braille, they learn travel, they learn those kinds of things. But if they don't come out of there with self-confidence, then that program has done them no good. So they do a lot of things like, I don't know, chopping down trees and rock climbing and hiking and horseback riding and the kinds of things that they think they're, they're afraid to do in order to learn that they can do whatever they want to do if they're willing to try and not to be afraid of it. But you have to have the support and you have to have the opportunities. And that program particularly, and there are others in the United States that take that same approach, um, I think that's extremely valuable because the goal is that self-confidence that is the hardest thing really to, to master sometimes. Thanks, Karen. We might move to China now. Please, Marianne. Yes. Fernando. Oh, sorry, before we move to China, who, who is this? Fernando, yeah? Fernando? Thank you, gracias. Uh, solo only I just wanted to compliment uh, what the colleagues were saying that the way that we understand leadership and we work in order to promote those leadership skills in our countries which are underdeveloped countries it is indispensable it is vital and fundamental the role of organization the role that organizations play the role of the movement we cannot allow 
to a side that the leaders are going to just arise because they have self-esteem or because they were born with certain characteristics, certain personal traits. Unfortunately, and although we may want, it is not the path that we find before us in order to promote the uh, the, the leaders being born. Many times we find people with a lot of self-esteem, a lot of strength, and uh, and with particular ideas about what we need, about we what we blind people need. Uh, but these persons with a big self-esteem, what they do is work in an isolated manner, in an autonomous manner, and many times they are a barrier and an obstacle for the collect for the collective work of our region. And I imagine that this could be repeated in other places. So I this really touched me. And with this, I would like to close to convince a gentleman who is blind. He, with important contacts at uh, the government level, to convince him that Braille is a transcendental uh, tool for us. He thought that Braille was dead, was ancient, was extinct. And these people could be very destructive. So we need for leaders to arise, to be promoted, and to develop based on a program on an institutional and political program that's sustainable, strong, and consolidated, but also monitored and pushed by our representing movement, by our associations. Thank you. Muchas gracias. We move to China now. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm Chen Yao Chong. Thank you. Um, yeah, over the, these few days, I get a message that uh, we are into a changing world with technology, uh, globalization, uh, a lot of other process, um, the UN Development Sustainable Development Goal Framework. So the kind of leadership that we need to build among our young people is really to have self-confidence, and also to think out of the box. So uh, we need to prove ourselves in new environment and daring to create something new for individuals as well as for groups. I would like to share one example that we find very successful in Hong Kong and also in around the world. Uh, we had an, we reversed experience uh, for sighted people, created a completely dark environment for sighted people to experience what it is like to be in the dark. So. The social enterprise is called Dialogue in the Dark. Um, we had, each year, we, had, we are able to attract 50,000 people to come, creating an income of 3 million US dollars in Hong Kong alone. 
and we create jobs of 40 to 50 for blind people. Uh, all over the world now, there are 40 to 50 countries with dialogue in the dark. And so I just want to share with you that these kind of new uh, initiative is not quite new, but it's still a, a creative energy there to you make use of the, the, to be positive about the darkness medium. And that gives us a upper edge in the control. So I'm just using this as example. So I hope um, we have blind people who do cookies and sell on the internet. Um, we have to make use of the uh, new environment, the new technology, more and more in creating possibilities for our younger generation and let them also have the confidence to create possibilities for themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that um, example. If we now go to Guatemala, is that? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much and good afternoon. I am going to address to Frederick, I believe your name is, from the United States. I also, also relating it to what has been mentioned previously, I believe that within the programs the, of, of the projects and the policies that are established, it is important to work and to strengthen the emotional component or the psychological component of people who have, uh, who have any kind of limitation, especially visually limitations, that they are, that they have self-esteem, that they have trust, that these people have uh, self-esteem and adequate self-esteem, that they feel that they are creative and original, and that they have that desire to be part of a change, part of a system, of a world. That is important for people who have uh, um handicaps. So, is there already within these programs, is that that element? Or if they don't exist, in my opinion, it would be a matter of proposing that personally. I can tell you that something that motivated me at the age of 21 to be able to work in the movement in Guatemala for people with visual limitations was the challenge. The challenge that there were many bad things that nobody had worked in order to improve them. And in the end, regardless whether I could see or not that I would have that mission, that work, that obligation, that responsibility, that commitment, and the capacity to do whatever I wanted to do. Thank you. Yes. Uh, very interesting question, and in some ways it has many parts to it and, and very complicated. I think you're, where, what you said at the end is really what stands out to me is the most important, that aspect of helping develop confidence. How do you do that? Well, there is no one way to do it. Karen mentioned through the training program that she directed before going to Washington that the program was a combination of developing skills but also confidence, challenging people and showing them they can do more than they thought they could do. I think that 
it's, it's not that that is necessarily in and of itself enough. No one thing is enough, but the core of all that we do needs to be rooted in a belief in the capacity of, of blind people. And I, I, the thing I would say about this, when, when we're trying to get the Marrakesh Treaty ratified in the U.S., and as we've talked to members of the United States Senate about this, we keep explaining to them that, that this is not just a treaty that will make it so that I have a, a magazine so I can sit lonely in my room and have something to pass my, my time, but that this helps support the real integration of blind people throughout society. Thanks, Fred. Um, if we move to Ireland now, we're going around the world this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne. It's interesting in, in, in listening to if you, the, the cameos, the vignettes of life that have made importance to um, people on the, on the platform and how they, in their own turn, have given importance to whether I've been fortunate enough to have probably for five decades moved around within the um, sphere of the European Blind Union and the World Blind Union and I've met great leaders. But could I say that when we're talking about leadership, we're not talking just about leaderships of our class, of our type. We're talking about becoming members of our parent-teachers association, mm -hmm. members of our Labour Party, if you're in the Labour Party, members of a branch. In a, very, in a very early young stage, I became a member of a debating society and eventually wound up as auditor of that society. I joined my residence association and after some of my male members had complained to me about mowing the lawn and their wives giving out how the blind man could mow the lawn and they wouldn't mow, they made me chairman of that <laughs> residence association. So what you have got to do is to participate in the way that people congregate. I was a member of creative writing groups and eventually led those groups. So in order to expand leadership into inclusion, you have to become part of the way and the places people gather in communities to give things back. And I think then you do get a greater acceptance. People will still want to regard you as equal to the dustman, but you've got to be patient and say that you're probably a little bit superior to the way that you are actually being treated. But I believe that inclusion, participation and respect comes from living the lives as neighbours, as colleagues and as, if you like, members of the Parent Teacher Association group. That's a very good point. I'm sure everyone here would agree. And I can say from my own perspective, of all the times I've spoken about the roles I've held in leadership, I usually comment that I think the biggest difference I've made is when I turn up to the parent-teacher meetings with my Braille agenda and participate not as a blind person but as a parent. So I totally share that view. We're going to South Africa now. Good afternoon, my name is Sandra Dreyer from South African National Council for the Blind. I also chair our women's program in South Africa 
And my question to the panel is, um, at the moment, um, I'm also heading our training department, and we're training young people in different career paths. And what we found that a lot of our young people lack the self-esteem and the mentoring for somebody to mentor them in the different type of career paths that they would like to choose. Um, so my question is basically... Um, in America, do you have an online mentoring program where young people can um, uh, sign up to become a mentee and a mentor will sign up with that person and, and just guide them through the training and be there through the um, experience of going through um, getting to the career that they would like to do? Thank you. We, we do. It's structured a little differently, I think, than than you might anticipate. For example, within the National Federation of the Blind, there is a national division for college students. And it's actually open to high school blind students as well. And they have a, a very active listserv. And so they have a network of people that can serve as resources to them. But it's not a formal system where I'm the mentor and you're the mentee. It's a, it's a community or information sharing. In addition to that, we have groups that are organized around professional interests. So for example, a division for uh, people in, in computer programming or science and engineering, uh, people who work in the human service fields, people who work as classroom teachers with sighted children, so in those networks are also a resource. And I, but I think your, your point is, is well taken. We, we've got to have organized ways of, of providing that mentorship. Thank you. Can I make a comment? Ron, yes. Hello? Yes. Yeah. Um, can I say, I get quite a number of young girls and boys in high school coming to me with vision impairment, what can they do? And I send them to the NFB website. Australia's a pretty small pond, but I said, just go and have a look and you'll see all the occupations that we blind and vision impaired can do. I think it's one of the best sites I've had. High school students come back to me and say, I didn't know a blind person could be a programmer. I didn't know a blind person could be a salesperson. I think it's a great resource and more power to the NFB. Thank you. That is a nice way to end the session. Time is running out. I'd like to thank our speakers. Thank you all of you for sharing your experiences and journeys. Certainly uh, a few words come to mind for me, having a vision, mobilising support with stakeholders, de delivering or taking responsibility if something isn't delivered well. Um, all things that um, I certainly can resonate with leadership. So thank you each speaker. Okay, so just before we end for the tea break, a couple of important announcements. Your program says this afternoon after tea break, the session will be for any unfinished business. Good news, we have no unfinished business. So you can, you can um, congratulate yourself and um, have the rest of the afternoon off. Remember there's a technology display on this level. You can use that if you choose to go to the, your time to go to the technology display. Tomorrow, 
and the, and the next mor Wednesday morning are the joint sessions, conference type sessions with ICEVI. Tomorrow morning being human rights, in the afternoon technology, and on Wednesday morning, um, youth. So everyone should come to those presentations. They will be interesting, inspiring, and informative. And then on Wednesday afternoon, we will resume here together as the World Blind Union to conclude our General Assembly. So enjoy the afternoon. Don't forget to go to the culture evening this evening, and we'll see you tomorrow morning. Thank you. There was any Okay, so that uh, concludes this afternoon's uh, broadcast, a bit earlier than expected. But we do have our interviewee here earlier than expected, Larry. Very so good. That's going to work out nicely. One moment, I'm uh, during the break, not realizing we're going to end early. I was in the process of sorting my lovely U.S. currency into denominations to put it away in my wallet. Oh, there you go. And, of course, since U.S. currency is all the same size and shape, I might add smell about to that as well. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the use fact the good the old is, money reader app. I use the money reader app on my iPhone yep, to so work that out. I do have one of the bill identifiers provided by the Bureau of In Engraving Bureau and Printing. Right. Uh, however, that's just one more gadget I'd have to haul around with me. So since the another iPhone is always get lost. <laughs> yeah. yeah, another one to get lost, another one to need batteries as well. There you go. So... I do have a guest here, and uh, after I plug away all my bits and pieces, I'm going to turn this microphone so that we can share this microphone. Thank you, Larry, for providing us one that has uh, the ability to talk into the side of it and still pick up things. Yes. So, Larry, without further ado, I'm going to we ask have? our guest to introduce himself. Tom? Hi, I'm Tom Pay. Um, I'm Irish by birth. Working in London, I'm the chief executive of the Royal Society for Blind Children and the chairman of a wonderful organization called Wayfinder.org, which is developing a uh, global standard for audio wayfinding, which is about helping blind and visually impaired people to navigate indoors using their smartphone. So you're a smartphone addict yourself, are I, you then? I am. Um, I've got two. And which, what do you carry with you? Uh, I've got an iPhone 6 Plus and I've got a Samsung. To be honest, I don't know the number of it. but um, So you it, do work the world of Android and iOS? I do. Both? Be yeah, because sometimes you can get a good deal on Android. Um, like KNFB, have a $20 app for... Um, for, for being the OCR, yeah, yes. That's right, yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, you have to pay $90 if you go on, um, on the, the iPhone Oh, yeah. Unless you're like me and you bought one in the earliest stages and got a real deal. Yeah, but then you guys, you're early adopters. Early yeah. adopters, <laughs> that's right. And, and we live on the bleeding edge of technology. Uh, there, you there you go. So I have, over the years, dealt with a number of different indoor wayfinding methods. You know, from the classic, you know, using your cane and working out and creating mental maps for yourself. Participated in some research done by... Uh, University of Tel Aviv on whether or not we can use a kind of a VR, virtual reality touch, in order to learn a space before we actually go there using a device called the uh, Viper, kind of a, yep. um, a like a, a thick ballpoint pen on the end of a servo motor chain mm. that allowed you to explore a virtual world by touch. 
including maps of space, and then go and see that for the first time cane in hand and see if that would improve the likelihood that you're going to get from where you want to be uh, throughout that space. And yep. for very, very interesting stuff, we've dealt with, with things that put all the responsibility on the built environment where it had to be altered to make it more accessible or ways that we had to insert things into the built environment and combine that with something we carry about with us i was just talking about the money identifier so the devices i had seen until very recently were all single purpose devices just used to interact with those beacons within the built environment all of which had to be hardwired, by the way. Right. So now we've gone to a whole new world where we're talking about things like Bluetooth beacons that can run on a battery for a year and therefore can be applied anywhere in the built environment and where you can utilize uh, smart technology, iPhones, in order to detect their location, triangulate your location, or send out a beacon saying, here is the thus and such. Um, so tell us about your efforts, because my one of my problems is I've got four different systems installed at the agency I work at, all of which have become obsolete rather rapidly, uh, none of which became very embedded in my world, except that one space when I was at work. So tell us about what you're up to. Okay. <clears throat> Pretty much when we started out, um, and uh, like you, uh, I was involved with all of these different wayfinding systems for many years but um, what we wanted was we wanted a simple inexpensive mainstream solution that could be adopted globally because one of the things that was also important to us was that if you're a blind person who came to New York or to Orlando or Washington or to London or to Bangkok that you had the same experience in your own language, no matter where you went to. That, so that was important. It was the second thing was that it was inexpensive, so it didn't put a, an enormous burden on the uh, environment owners to be able to, um, to put it in. And the third thing was that it didn't cost a blind person any more money right, to uh, be able to use it. So you had to be able to use it with your own smartphone. So um, using uh, mainstream to- Bluetooth beacons... Uh, using a uh, smartphone app, app we uh, tested this system in the underground system in London um, with, uh, along with Transport for London who own all of the public transport in, uh, in London uh, we um, put it into the most complicated sta- um, station which has a million and a half passengers moving through it every day uh, and um, it worked really well so Transport for London are now about to uh, roll this out right across London. Um, however, we also spoke to the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority, the U.S. Department for Transport, for instance, and um, people in Sydney, um, people in France, and, uh, and across Europe. Um, and it became clear that what was required was a global standard. So unless there was a global standard then all we would have is four or five different systems operating in different locations, giving a different experience to blind people. So we've applied to the, through, uh, to the um, International Telegraphic Union, which is, um, a, a, um, subscribes to the, uh, to the UN. We want this to be uh, done under the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities so that it becomes a right 
um, for blind people across the world. Um, and we're happy that uh, a number of U.S. Uh, organizations for enough blind people have um, agreed to support us in making sure that we get this global standard. So really, it's just Bluetooth beacons and uh, you know, battery life is improving all of the time. You can now use induction power, so you can pick up the leakage of power off um, cables that are running through the uh, just the electric cables that are running through the normal uh, environment system. Um, and um, so to to kit out uh, a station in London where a million and a half passengers go through every day is about fifteen thousand dollars. Um, and all you need is your smartphone and bone conducting earphones so that you can pick up the audio signal and it's very simple it tells you you're going forward go forward carry on the way you're going you, you, um, you're going to uh, come to an up escalator or a down escalator and so on so it just describes to you what you need to know and what you would normally want to locate using your white cane or your guide dog just gives you a bit more um, advance notice it also just picks out the beacons on the the, in the journey that you want to go on so you can say I want to go from here to here it will pick all the beacons out that are on that particular journey um, and those are the only ones that will t- give you the directions it ignores the rest of them again the, these are the kinds of things that as mainstream technology becomes more prolific bringing the price per unit down as technologies such as battery technologies and energy technologies, as you've discussed, continue to uh, evolve in a way that we can take advantage of mainstream technologies as opposed to blindness-specific ones, things become possible. Uh, They simply become possible. Absolutely. Now, I'm in the process of re-kitting my house as a smart home. And I've already got three different systems in the house that I'm trying to deal with. So one of the things that I've come to the conclusion is that I'm going to use a system called Smart Things. And one of its advantages is it's open source. Yes. When you're referring to the standard, it would be an open source standard, one assumes. And as a result, any manufacturer uh, can take advantage of that standard and then build product around it. No, absolutely, and that is critical. Um, and because it's open source, because it's available free to um, manufacturers or to app producers, then um, they have no, there's no economic bar for them to go and do it themselves. Um, and having a, an organization like the ITU behind you, that just gives it an enormous amount of credibility. Yeah, and having um, then good contacts within the blind community across the world means that we will always be at the cutting edge and doing the best thing we can for blind people. I think this is just an exciting opportunity. Um, and as technology develops and as the Internet of Things um, becomes much more prolific in our homes, stuff like this, is, you know, having it open source, like you said, is so important, isn't it? Yeah, recently I had uh, researchers from Google stop by my home and the homes of uh, half a dozen other people that I helped identify in the Boston area. And their question was, how valuable would something be if it were actually in your home, not just in public spaces, but in your home? What would it have to look like to be a value to you there? You know, there, there's a couple of television shows, kind of reality television shows, 
where a group of well-meaning individuals and companies get together and build a home for somebody. Yeah. It might be a, you know, a disabled vet, or it might be uh, somebody who was a flood victim, something along those lines. Yeah. And inevitably, inevitably, when they come up with a person who is blind or visually impaired that they're going to do this good deed for, they modify that home to such an extreme that uh, I'm frequently astounded. Uh, yeah, you know, it prices it right different. out of the market. Absolutely, <laughs> but it also <laughs> utilizes <laughs> things that you and I, as blind people, would never think of doing. Painting each room in a different texture. I Absolutely. I yeah. mean, give me a break, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me, but if I show my personal bias here, I'm interested in a world that looks the same for a sighted person as a blind person. Yes. But I have some bits and pieces that they may use for a different purpose. Yes. But I use for my purpose. Correct. So these Bluetooth beacons in the built environment, we, we, we need to sell them to the sighted that yes. they serve a purpose for them as well. Right. Do you have any suggestions on yeah. how that well, might be? The, the, the big, big selling point for Transport for London was because, you know, to kit out all of the stations in London, both the underground and the overground stations in London, is a, yeah, not a lot of money in transport terms. But you're looking at about $15 million just to put the um, hardware in. What it does is that, you know, we get lots of Japanese tourists and, uh, you know, tourists from around the world in London. And, of course, their biggest problem is reading signs. The other um, problem is that um, if you look at research, that older people um, find navigating the, um, you know, the transport environment as stressful as we do. Even though they can read the signs, it's about making those decisions quickly and being able to move on. So it, this was a product that was, it didn't just help blind people, but helped lots of other people as well, and added economic benefit to um, the London Underground system, and helped to do social good. So this was a win-win for everybody, um, and, um, and as I said, for blind people, it doesn't cost anything. And the, uh, the lovely thing about this is this is a product that was designed by, by blind people for blind people but it's benefiting the wider community, and I think that's just great, isn't it? Absolutely. No question that the more we can take the things that benefit us and find a twist on them that benefits the world at large, and again, the more we can depend on things that are mass-produced rather than things that are virtually hand-built, example would be refreshable Braille displays and yep. the outrageous cost of them up to this point. We need to utilize things that are commonly available. And the other thing that we have to concern ourselves, that will be here not for a day, but Correct. for a generation. Absolutely. Uh, and that's one of the things one wonders, and when I say worry, I mean it's not keeping me up late at night, <laughs> yeah. worry about any kind of piece of tech that we build into the environment. You know, a light switch is a light switch is a light switch for the most part. And we see the same one in my house today as my parents and, the, my, and, and their parents. Uh, on, off. Switch up, switch down. Uh, when we talk about doing technologies like Bluetooth beacons, one of the things that's happening in, in this whole smart space kind of scenario is something called web, uh, web establishment. Instead yeah. of... Uh, doing something in a wireless fashion where the farther away from you farther away from a point you are uh, the 
if you will, the more timid the connection is to yeah. the information you're looking for. Sure. But here, this instead is more a daisy chain scenario. Correct. It's their distance from one another that drives the data to make it useful for people and to be able to create these controls. So I hope that as this standard is developed, it deals with issues of changing standards, not only in the hardware, but in the actual science that holds the whole thing together. And that is critical because, um, you know, this is, the hardware is mobile phone dependent, so it's, it's smartphone dependent. Uh, so it's really important that we have a global standard that also um, locks in the mobile phone providers insofar as that can be possible so that the, uh, in the, in the environmental hardware doesn't have to be changed that often. Exactly. We had a speaker here earlier today, uh, the new S chief accessibility officer for Microsoft and uh, the organization that I'm part of, the American Council of Blind, is working very, very closely with Microsoft to embed accessibility into the operating system and into the products that Microsoft distributes. So accessibility becomes so embedded yes. in the core code that if the code advances, the accessibility, by definition, must advance. Absolutely. And I think that same thing must hold true for what you're describing. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it is so important. And, uh, you know, can I just say that um, you guys at the WCB, we um, we're, we really want you to get on with this thing with Microsoft. It's so important on a selfish level for me and my job. Um, you know, some, I'm now using Microsoft 10, and my God, I just get nightmares so <laughs> <laughs> we're working hard on it just hang in with us till the first of the year when, and, and when the next rollout will be pretty amazing fantastic pretty and the other amazing. thing i just want to say whilst we're talking is that um none of this would have been possible without google google gave us a million dollars to go away and change the world for blind people and um you know with everybody's help around the world hopefully that's what we're going to do we're going to do it for ourselves yeah, I find it amazing that the main companies in the world of IT, Google, Apple, Microsoft, they are all at the table. Yes. They're talking to us in a way they never have. They simply never have in the past. And again, if we can embed these things into the operating systems themselves so that as the oper operating systems change and improve, access moves with it. It's well, the part whole, of the whole yeah. process. The whole principle of design has changed. You know, we were always looked upon as difficult customers um, and afterthoughts. What they figured out was if they could design things that worked for us, then they gave greater flexibility for mainstream users. Uh, they're kind of beating one another up to do more for us nowadays. And of course, you know, the number one reason for all of that, we're all getting old. Yeah, that's we're true. We're all yeah. getting old and, and they don't want their customer base to be all based on selling to youth. Well, given that we're on radio and most of our listeners are blind, I was trying to let on I was still young. <laughs> Good job. Good job. And, and how are you doing that now, my friend? Very good. Well, hey, listen, I really appreciate you being on air with us here on ACB no, Radio thank you, today. No, thank you for allowing me. How can yeah. people learn more about your project? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to hand over to my colleague here, Florence Orban, because um, she's going to tell you just precisely how you can do that. You can find all the information you need on um, wayfinder.net, so www.wayfinder.net. And that will give the 
the average blind person can, can become involved in this in simply advocating with their carrier, or, or what would they do? I can see how organizations can assist. Right. What we want you to do is uh, go on um, the website, have a look at the standard, and figure out how good a job we've done. We don't mind you telling us that we've done a bad job, uh, because what we want to do is to get this right. Um, we are going to make a presentation to the International Telegraphic Union, the ITU, in um, September. By December, hopefully, we will then start the process of making this a proper ITU standard. Um, we just want your feedback the whole way through the process to make sure that when it comes out, it's precisely what you want and what you need. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again for coming and speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks and for being on. Brilliant. We move on now to uh, our break. Actually, I have a second person who's supposed to stop by for an interview. Yeah. You haven't seen somebody hovering about? Yeah, there's somebody there we good. Okay. Not only my wife, but president of the American Council of the Blind. And I must say, somebody ought not to say just wife. I think that that's a, not the right approach toward these things. All right. So gotta we're going to be careful with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you got to be right. very careful with those phrases. Yeah. So do we have another interview or? Nope. Okay, well, then in that case, we're going to go ahead and sign off for the day, and we'll get things ready for the replays, and we'll come back live tomorrow morning at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 13 GMT. And from Orlando, Florida, we hope you have a good afternoon and evening. Here on ACB Radio Interactive. Live event. I always do that, don't I? That's okay. Live event is okay, too. <laughs> Thank you, one all and all. All the streams are good. All of them are good. Listen to them all. Take care now, everybody.